In 2019, this Blue Jackets did more than simply beat the Tampa Bay Lightning. They swept the Bolts in round one and forced them to take a step back to evaluate what they lacked. Winnipeg, meantime, might have done the same thing to Edmonton this year after a stunning round one sweep. Plus, the OT drama continued across the NHL, and we saw plenty of upsets in round one. We examine what happened, look at the questions that face the eliminated squads, and preview wrapped. Episode 271 of the Lace of the Podcast starts right now. It's time to lace them up. Here's Brett and Steve. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Steve Ellsworth. I'm Brett Dubuff. We will uh, talk about uh, Edmonton's failed attempt at a playoff run and Winnipeg's uh, shocking bet. Um, but uh, we'll uh, venture into the East Division first, where there was a couple of upsets there, Brett. Yeah, uh... Yeah, I guess the one and two seeds were the upset. However, I feel like yeah. the Bruins and the Islanders aren't your normal three and four seeds. <laughs> I think that's fair Definitely to say. Not, yeah. Uh, no. Like, yeah, they're both pretty experienced teams. Not to say the Penguins and the Capitals weren't experienced either, but um, but yeah, I think there is something that like it, it felt like all four of these teams were neck and neck all year and that like pretty much it wouldn't surprise you if the Bruins were the first seed or the Islanders were the first seed because um, it was that close all year um, but yeah we're gonna do something special I guess kind of similar to what we did in round one where we just take it by division and then we'll do um, we're not gonna do like storylines to talk about but we will preview it um, but uh, like we've done in past playoffs, we've, we're going to do like little obituaries for teams that are just out of the playoffs. So we're going to talk about those teams first, and then we'll uh, preview the next round in this division. Um, so the first, uh, the first, I guess, obituary we'll do is the Pittsburgh Penguins. Um, they... I mean, it seemed like in that series that they were outmatched last, uh, but not because of like, you know, guys like Crosby and Malkin didn't perform or um, even like Casper, guys like Casper Kapanen and Ryan Russ got in a few points in there here and there. So it wasn't like that. I mean, sure, probably would have helped um, if they scored a little bit more, but um, I think the biggest reason why they lost the matchup was Tristan Jari. Um, he there was like pretty much every game that Tristan Jari lost, uh, played in um, was terrible. And what was more discouraging was just that like the fact that they didn't even like put in Casey to Smith in at all. Like you know if you look back at um, other teams like at least like the Capitals for instance. Um, so they had. Vitek Vanacek, um, and they had Samsonov, who was out as well. But then, um, you know, then it seemed like, you know, uh, Craig Anderson wasn't getting it done. And then they put in, uh, you know, they put in uh, Samsonov 
mean, I guess a better example would be the Florida Panthers when, like, Bobrovsky starts the first game, and then they uh, take him take him out because he wasn't performing well, and then they put in Dreiger, and Dreiger wasn't playing well, and then they put in um, Spencer Knight, and that's probably the goalie that they should have done, and we'll get to them uh, when we get to them, but... Uh, that, I mean, that was kind of the reason why they, they lost was because they didn't go to, they didn't start with Spencer Knight from the beginning, but like for Tristan Jari, like it, it was clear that he wasn't like something was up with him. Um, and it's, it's kind of strange cause we know what he's capable of, but he just had a bad couple of games and just wasn't able to, uh, come back from any of the goals that, uh, he was missing. Um, and like they, I, I, I still don't know why the Penguins, they didn't even try to put in Casey DeSmith in. Cause it's not like Casey DeSmith is like the worst goalie in the world. Um, like if the Avs or the Winnipeg Jets somehow struggle, um, they're, they're screwed. But like the Penguins, like, you know, Casey DeSmith didn't play that badly. Um, so I, I feel like that was a big reason why they, um, they ended up losing it or it just wasn't as close as um, it could have been. But, uh, but yeah, again, it was just like the goaltending was horrific um, and they didn't replace it at all. Uh, Tristan Jari had a 0.88 save percentage and a 3.18 GAA percentage. And I guess to be fair, he did win two games, um, but he lost four. It's just, it's just strange that they didn't even put in a backup. Um, we'll, I'll get into the cap-friendly cap page um, in a second about like what free agents they have to sign. But um, what, what was your takeaway um, as well <laughs> on this Yeah, series? so, I mean, the numbers for Tristan Jerry, they don't look impressive. I don't think he was horrifically bad. He was But when bad. it came to making the big saves... Sorokin did it a lot more than Jerry did. And to be fair to Ilya Sorokin, by far the reason why the Islanders won that series, he was absolutely phenomenal, just stonewalling the Penguins left, right, and center. And Jerry couldn't match him save for save. And I go back to the 2019 series. No, no, it was, yeah, it was 2019 uh, when uh, the Islanders and Pens faced off in round one. It was the same story. Matt Murray versus Robin Leonard. Robin Leonard was the better goalie. And I still trusted the Penguins to win that series. That didn't really turn out that well. Um, And then you look at the uh, Penguins-Canadians series last year. A team that should have beaten Montreal doesn't even go the distance before losing. They lose in four games in a play-in series. Don't even technically make the playoffs. And at that point, I'm thinking, I can't trust their goaltending in the playoffs, but I also can't trust their defense. And I go back to the preview section, uh, I believe last episode, where I said, the team that almost blew a 6-0 lead to the New Jersey Devils cannot be trusted to beat the New York Islanders. And what do you know? The Islanders, built for playoff hockey, outlast the Pittsburgh Penguins. They're able to contain Crosby and Malkin to an extent. Jake Gensel had a tough time scoring goals. Jeff Carter, I will give Jeff Carter credit. He was good. Uh, um, Brandon Tana for what he brought in terms of grit. 
in terms of timely plays, timely goals. Um, he offered a lot there too. Casper, uh, Kapanen, Brian Rust, uh, they contributed as well. I just overall as a team, I don't know what you do to improve upon it. Like you're a you're a, a decent first seed, I would say, in a very tough division. And there's no doubt that they were able to maintain a level of success throughout the regular season. But I don't consider the Pittsburgh Penguins as a de- as a team that can go deep into playoff runs with this core. I, I think the prime years are done. And when you look at Malkin's contract winding down and Chris Letang's contract winding down, I hate to say one or both should be traded, but how else are the Penguins going to improve? Like, they're yeah. near the salary cap. They don't have the best prospect pool right now. They're trading first-round picks. Well, Hextall hasn't traded a first-round pick yet, but they're not going to have a first-round pick this year. So (laughs) I I don't know how else you can get better and improve upon your roster unless you make a couple of noteworthy trades. Hmm. That uh, first-round pick, by the way, was uh, for last year's Jason Zucker trade. Um, I thanks for reminding me on that. Uh, yeah, that, that it's true. I, I feel like for the future, there's they're in trouble. Um, it's not like you know Crosby and Malkin are both very good players, uh, but and Gensel too. Um, but yeah, it's just like the supporting cast and like Malkin had the worst year of his career, even though it it was decent if I if you look at his stats. So it's like, you know, you're, you're going to have to expect that they're going to be downturn, even though, like, you know, Sidney Crosby's 33 years old, Malkin's 34 years old. So it's not like um, they're young chickens anymore either. But, um, but yeah, it, it's like you would expect them to have a little bit more fire to them too. Um, I also just looked at the... Um, regular season stats because I was thinking like if you if you think like you know like like Casey Smith was so bad that he didn't even play in the playoffs to bail out Tristan Jari. Look here, Casey Smith had a better regular season stats than Tristan Jari did. Um, not to go back to that, but I, I am getting back to that. Uh, his GAA was two point five four, and Tristan Jari's in the regular season was two point seven five. He also had a 9.12 save percentage, whereas Jari had a 9.09 save percentage. So he was better in both of those stats as well. Of course, you know, Casey Smith played in 20 games, whereas uh, Tristan Jari played in 39. But, um, yeah, it's just, it's a weird, um, I, I think, I think the Penguins are going to have, going to be kind of busy this year, um, this offseason, uh, even though they don't have too many free agents um, this this coming summer, um, I guess most of them are just RFAs um, or the notable ones are RFAs. Uh, Zach Aston Reese, Casper Borkfist, Redeem Zahara, and Teddy Bluger. Um, oh, and I guess Mark Jankowski are also RFAs, but um, which are you know somewhat notable guys uh, here and there. They score some points, but um, they could afford to lose those guys or you know put them off in a trade. Um, and then in terms of UFAs, there's Colton Sevier, um, Frederick Goudreau, Evan Rodriguez, 
Cody CC, uh, Yannick Weber, um, and I guess oh I guess there's a couple of goalies as well. Maxime Legacy is also a UFA, and then an RFA is Emil Larmy. Um, oh and oh and Nick, but Nick Bukestad gets off the salary there too, so they have a little bit of space. Um, but but yeah, it's it's gonna be. Um, I feel like there's going to be at least one big move that they're going to make. I'm not sure yet what, but but they're going to make some move. Yeah, I mean, you look at the 2022 EFAs is what concerns me because Malkin is on there with his $9.5 million cap hit. You have Brian Rust, who's been a phenomenal second-line addition. Instant chemistry with Malkin. You can't disrupt that. He's making $3.5 million. I definitely think at the point-per-game rate he's been at the past couple of years, um, that'll be at least $5 million per year. Uh, Jeff Carter, I don't know if they bring him back. Maybe they do. We'll see. And then you have Chris Letang at $7.25 million. Those are the big four that really stick out to me. And on top of that, you have RFAs like Kasperi Kapanen, who's making $3.2 million right now. Jared McCann who has um, provided a lot of quality secondary scoring for them this year. Right. That's great for them. Uh, his cap hit is $2.94 million right now. Uh, and I'm not going year by year. I'm just going the annual average value of, it, of the contract uh, that was signed at the time. Um, and you look at Jason Zucker, who's been hot and cold, similar to Tristan Jari this year. I thought he started to find his game a little bit, but he was also injured. Um, in the case of Tristan Jerry, Brett, you alluded to his numbers there. He started off terrible, True. but then mid-season started to find his groove, struggled a little bit towards the end, and was then inconsistent again throughout the first round. And I will give credit to Mike Sullivan for being a guy that lives and dies with his lineup, but if I'm Ron Hextall, if I'm Brian Burke looking at this roster, trying to maximize every single opportunity to keep this window open, to keep the odds of winning a Stanley Cup significant uh, with the, the Crosby and Malkin regime. I look at the coaching staff, Mike Sullivan in particular. I look at goaltending, defense, boards, where they can improve. And they're, uh, I expect they will turn over every single stone Um to figure out how to fix this. Yep. They cannot go into next year with limited changes. They're going to have to shake things up some way. Yeah, that's a good point, too. I, I think they're going to make some move, and I think the goaltending seems to be the, the biggest issue for them, and I guess defense as well. But, um, yeah, we'll see how that goes. Um, let's go to the Washington Capitals. Uh, their obituary here. Um, they... You know, I, I think it, this was a mixture of, like, um, their loss was more of a mixture of, like, the Bruins were playing really well at parts of it. But then there was other parts where the Capitals were kind of taking control. It was just, um, but then, like, you know, towards, especially in Game 5 and, I guess, a little bit in Game 4, it really just felt like they just gave up um, and just stopped caring um, and, and it was just so like, they just didn't like, even when they were down three to one in the series, you know, that's, that's not a telltale sign like of, of, um, a Stanley cup 
contending team is like when you're down three to one or you know down three whatever uh the score is as long as you're if you're like you know elimination game uh you're supposed to show up but they didn't really show up too much um in the last game and i guess in game four as well too where like even for someone who was rooting against them like, I wasn't as scared in Game 5 as I was for them for the first four games. Which like, is kind of funny yeah. because, like, they dominated the shot clock, but yeah. was it a case of, like, quality chances? They didn't get enough of those? Yeah, I, I, I think it was it was more of that. It was just, like, I, I guess maybe it was I'm, like, wearing Homer glasses where I just, <laughs> I just felt like the Bruins were uh, in it. Like, you know, it, I didn't really feel like... Um, the Capitals were going to win the game, and I don't know. I, I just, I, I guess I'm more commenting on the fact that, like, just their identity in, in, in general. It seems like they've, maybe this was, I don't know, I don't, I didn't really watch them last year either, but uh, maybe it's like, I feel like because they won in 2018, they just, like, stopped putting the gas to the metal. They just stopped caring. Because most of those guys are from that 2018 team that won. Um, and and now that they've won, they just stopped like being motivated to do anything. Um, and that's not to take away anything from like you know I'm sure you know Alex Ovechkin tries and TJ Oshie tried. They both had pretty good series, but I think like the rest of the team, it seemed like they weren't really doing anything. Uh, Garnet Hathaway is another one as I'm looking at their their roster sheet right now. Uh, Garnet Hathaway did play well. Um, but yeah, it just seemed like, I don't know. It just seemed like they, they just stopped their, their lack of effort was, was pretty noticeable. Um, and, but I, I will say that I think there's uh, another component to it where I think like guys like, uh, Ilya Samsonov, um, he did play well, even though like, if you look at the stats, it doesn't look like it. Uh, he had a 2.99 GAA. And a save percentage of eight nine nine in uh, the playoffs, um, and he also went o three and o. But um, but yeah, he did he did play well, and it like it could have been like a barn burner for all three of those games if he wasn't in net at that point. So it's not entirely his fault um, there, but I think that just goes to show you about like what the Capitals have been all year. It's just just inconsistency uh, you just never felt like they were back to what they were in 2018 um which at this point was four years ago so um so yeah it's it's uh I, i'm not sure what you do here um i think there were rumors that evgeny kuznetsov is probably getting traded but then when you look at his contract he has four more years with a 7.8 million left um and that's crazy um Alex Ovechkin is going to be a UFA which I didn't even realize it but it does seem like a foregone conclusion that he's going to re-sign with the Capitals I just can't see him going anywhere else um they also have uh Zidane Ochara and Paul Ledoux as UFAs and Craig Anderson is the UFA but I guess what it will come down to is like how much will Alex Ovechkin sign for um this offseason because like the rest of their team is pretty much you know solid for the next couple of years and that's the frightening part honestly is that like 
um, they're all pretty much locked in for the next couple of years, and there's no real urgency for them because they're, they're going to be back next year with the same group. Um, and that's not a good thing because I'm not – if I was a Caps fan, I probably wouldn't be happy with, with this group here. I feel like they have to make some big move, and um, I'm not sure if that's going to happen with their, their cap situation. Yeah, so um... – there, and there's also rumblings that, oh, you know, TJ Oshie would be right. a great fit in Seattle. He's been pretty vocal about staying in Washington. He wants yep. to retire as a member of the Capitals. It's a cliche that a lot of players use, but he seems pretty genuine about finishing out his career in Washington. And you look at his production, I would say it's a lot better than what Kuznetsov did this right. year. And on top of not producing, Kuznetsov was on COVID protocols twice, putting yep. his team in a bad spot. Twice. Samson- Samsonov as well, The way they handled well, the too. Jacob Varanas situation. Yeah, same with Samsonov. But you look at the way they handled the Jacob Varanas situation, and he was, like, getting benched and, and, and stuff like this, and then they ended up trading him uh, to Detroit for Anthony Mantha. Uh, I think Varana didn't put the Capitals in as bad a spot as Kuznetsov did. And if that's how they handled Jacob Varana, you have to trade Kuznetsov. Yeah. Like, you have to. Like, the, I th- and I think that's the other part is just like, oh, you know, we got John Carlson back. We got Nicholas Backstrom back. You know, we're going to get Alex Ovechkin back. The gang's all year. We, we got another chance to do this. I think they've grown complacent. Like, they just think, oh, the same guys are going to be back next year. Someone's got to tell them it doesn't work like that. Yeah. The NHL doesn't work like that. The NHL is a business. When you – get eliminated in the first round three straight years after you win the cup. I don't think that becomes acceptable. Like you, you, you lost on a couple of occasion to teams that you were better than in the standings. You lose to Pittsburgh, uh, or sorry, not, uh, you lost to Carolina in overtime, mind you, of, 2019 and then 2020 comes around you lose to the Islanders first round and that team goes to the final four but still you barely hung on to win your division I think you have enough firepower to beat the Islanders at least in seven yeah and then this year they go up against a Bruins team that got that caught fire at the right time but you you don't have the firepower to outlast them and More importantly, the firepower that you have is basically redundant. Like, the the Bruins didn't really give them much of anything to work with. And give credit to Tuka Rask again for for being the better goalie in the series, and and Samsonov did have his moments. But in a very tight series where everything is back and forth, where you have a 1-0 lead in the series, you go into overtime game two, you don't have the killer mindset. The Bruins score an early one, and then they drag in game three to double overtime, and then that fluke play happens. Just the composure from Alex Ovechkin, I'm thinking, the, the Caps don't look to be in pretty good shape here. And it, it just seemed like they couldn't get things back on track after that 2-1 deficit. Not to say Alex Ovechkin's the problem. I think he is going to stay in Washington He's confident that they're going to find a way to make something work, and the team wants him to stay there. 
So I definitely think Ovechkin and Oshie are going to be back next year. But like even going back to that infamous incident in uh, what was it uh, the 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 Vegas hotel room with Evgeny Kuznetsov oh, yeah, there, yeah. Um, there, there there's just a lot of concerns about to me Kuznetsov's work ethic and offensive production. I I can't, I can't see a scenario where he's back with the team. I I just really? I think he's run out of lifelines there. Huh. Oh, for Kuznetsov. I do for wonder. Kuznetsov, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, with with a lot of UFA yeah. goalies there, maybe yeah. maybe Samsonov. They give him another year to develop. Yeah, but, I can see that. But I I don't think they've given up on Samsonov as much as they've pro- probably given up on Kuznetsov. Like yeah. Kuznetsov needs to be better than what he was this year. Yeah, I kind of wonder if. Seattle takes them on. You did mention Seattle. I feel like, I don't know, at this point, if I were Seattle, I probably wouldn't even want Kuznetsov. But, I mean, I'll take a cent, like a top six center at any point, I guess, of Seattle. But then you have to, like, consider the fact, like, he does have these, like, personality issues where it doesn't seem like uh, there's something up. But maybe he just needs a change of scenery. So that's definitely possible. Um, another thing to consider for Washington and their future is uh, because of that uh, Anthony Mantha, uh, Jacob Verana trade, um, they don't have their first round pick this year. So, um, and that's going to the Red Wings. So that's, that's definitely something to uh, keep an eye on for sure in the future um, is that like they pretty much made that trade because they felt like they were going to go far um, because you don't make that trade if you don't think your, your team's going to get out in the first round so they're kind of in trouble there because they don't have their first round pick and it's not like Washington Capitals are have like a loaded farm um in their development too so it's like um it's a weird situation other than I guess Connor McMichael and Alex Alexander Alexiev but like other than that they don't really have like any like prospects that kind of stand out to you I guess Henrik let Le- LaPierre as well, but he's going to take some time too. So, so yeah, I think they have to, um, if they, I feel like the Capitals are at the point where they should rebuild, but I don't think they're going to. Um, and a lot of it's going to have to depend on what out, what they do with Alex Ovechkin. Uh, cause I, I feel like they, they can't just let him go cause he's basically their franchise, um, at this point. So, uh, they can't let him go. Obviously, he's not who he used to be, um, but he still, you know, he still scores goals. He's still like one of the best players in this league. But, um, but I think there. This might be a hot take, but I think it might be time for the Capitals to move away from Ovechkin. Um, but I don't think it's going to happen. Um, but, but maybe I don't know. Maybe it does. <laughs> we'll see. Um, all right, let's go to our series preview here, the Bruins Islanders. Uh, so game one already happened and the Bruins won five to two. Uh, David Pasternak gets a hat trick. Um, and, uh, there was, Oh, it was also full capacity out in Boston. It was pretty cool just to see like a, like it felt like a normal game now all of a sudden it's, it was pretty cool. And it was evident that like the players were feeding off of the fans and we'll talk about this later, but like, the same could be said for the Montreal-Toronto uh, game. Even, like, some fans in Montreal 
it, does, it did seem to have an impact on the game as well. So um, it was it was cool to see from from this Bruins fan just like seeing just an outpouring of like a full house in Boston cheering them on. Um, I will say though that uh, like I, I I think I was like nervous at the beginning because what happened was the Bruins were just peppering uh, Sorokin with with shots the entire time in the first period and I was just worried that like Sorokin's just gonna stand his head because I watched the Penguins Islanders series and like Sorokin was really 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 good like yes we just did a Penguins um, we just did a Penguins uh, obituary there where I was commenting about Tristan Jari um, being bad but Sororkin was a big reason why the Islanders advanced. And, you know, not to take anything away from guys like uh, Anthony Beauvillier, um, Adam Pellick was another one. Um, there's also uh, there's one other person. Oh, John, John Gabriel Bajot. Um, they, all, they all had great series against uh, the Penguins, but um, the, like, it just... Um, Sororkin just feels like he's finally at the level that we were all hyping him to be. And it's scary. <laughs> like as, as, a, as a, a fan of a team that's opposing uh, this Islanders team, like Sororkin's going to steal a couple of these games. Um, I just know it. It just, um, even though like the score was 5-2, to two, it really felt like it was three to two uh, like i will you know. say the rebound control at times was a yeah. bit concerning and uh, the bruins beat yeah, writers didn't pick up on that but yeah. it seems like he's kind of a guy that uh, adapts in a relatively short term so in game two i expect him to be better than he was in game yeah. one so i, I this is more free form here uh pasternak finally gets going uh he scored in the, th- the last three games of these playoffs and he also gets a hat trick, so he now has five goals. Um, so, so that's that's good, good to see of him. And so he has nine points in six games, um, and it's it's nice to see that he's finally getting going. As well as Charlie McAvoy, um, he's been he's been um, as good as advertised, even better because now he's playing on the first power play. Uh, which has always been an interesting development for for us Bruins fans because we're waiting to see when will McAvoy be that power play quarterback that like you know Krug did and Chara did before him, um, and it seems like you know in these playoffs he's been taking that um, and, and taking it really well and and doing a really good job with that. Um, other news uh, that. I'll get to uh, Craig Smith is injured. Um, he didn't play, I think, the entire third period. Um, so that could be concerning in the future because that second line has been pretty good uh, with Taylor Hall and David Krejci with Craig Smith. So I, I am curious to see how they're going to handle that. I think maybe Jake DeBrus will get some time there maybe. Or um, I think they were saying Carson Kuhlman will probably get into the alignment line up somehow. Um, so like <laughs> going from Craig Smith to Jake DeBrusque or Carson Kuhlman will be a, a significant downgrade. Um, and that could be an issue. I, I know that, uh, Matt Grizzlick also got injured. Um, I'm not sure of the update of that, but that's going to also be pretty serious too. Cause 
the Bruins were down defensemen the entire year, um, and Grizzlick's been an important uh, piece to the Bruins' de- defense in general. So um, I'm not sure how they're going to replace him if he's out long term, but it looked pretty bad when you saw the hit. Um, so I, I feel, I hope he's okay, but um, I'm not sure what the latest is on that just yet. Um, as for the Islanders, and I'll take it to you in a second um, after that, uh, the, like, they, they kept on talking about this on NBC, and, um, and I didn't realize this because I wasn't really paying atten- too much attention to it, but I probably should have. Matthew Barzal, he has three assists in these seven games that he's played um, in these playoffs. Um, if the Islanders are going to do well um, or, you know, go advance and beat the Bruins which they very well could. Um, Matthew Barzell has to get in on this action. Uh, there's just no ways about it. Like, yeah, I think the Islanders have the edge in the defense. They're about even in goaltending. Um, although I, I guess, you know, Tuco obviously has more experience, but I, I think Sorokin's really, really good. Um, and the forward, uh, the forward group uh, is better than, uh, for the Bruins than the Islanders are. But, like, Matthew Barzell's their best forward, um, bar none, and especially when they don't even have Anders Lee. Um, and he has to get going if the Islanders expect to win this series. There, there's just no way about it. Um, so I, I am curious if, like, um, there's something that maybe changing some lines to get him going again, but... That something needs to happen to, to get him going. You would think, though, that it would be motivation enough that the Bruins passed on him for uh, three straight times uh, and not draft him. You would think that he would be a Bruins killer, but he hasn't been there just yet. I'm going to knock on some wood that he's not, um, but um, it's very possible that there's going to be like one game where Matthew Barzal just goes off, and, um, and that's going to be scary. <laughs> I can tell you can secretly um, you can secretly appreciate uh, the Fort Never Lose mentality, and I I think you have a secret fandom for the Islanders. I can I can smell it. I can smell it from my microphone. <laughs> Are you no, saying I, you I think I'm an Islanders fan? I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really an Islanders fan, actually. Well, not, not for this series, you're not. No, no. Even I, I feel like there's they're probably the most boring team um, in this league. <laughs> So I, I'm not an Islanders fan. If if they go far, I mean, I, I, there is some aspect of it. Like, I do generally like the underdogs. But, yeah, if they, I if they go far, I probably wouldn't root for them unless it was against the Habs or the Leafs. Yeah, those are the only other two teams that I probably hate more. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Uh well, I, I, I must say, the, the Islanders, I don't think they've looked this credible since, um, well, f- I, I, it might seem like a stretch to say they haven't looked this good since the 80s dynasty, but the remarkable stretch over the past couple of years is the closest thing to do that. Uh, and speaking of the 80s dynasty, um, that's how far back um, the playoff series between the Bruins and Islanders dates back. Um First time since 1983, the Eastern Conference Finals, since these two teams squared off in the playoffs, the Islanders, of course, won that series and later won the Stanley Cup. I believe it was their 
fourth and final title during uh, that four straight years of dominance that they had. Uh, and prior to that, 1980, round two, the Bruins lost 4-1 to the Islanders. Uh, in that Eastern Conference Finals series in 83, I alluded to, that was a 4-2 um, that was a 4-2 series win for the Islanders. So this is their third all-time matchup. Uh, when you take a look at the season series, uh, the first five meetings went to the Islanders. This included a 1-0 regulation win and a monstrous 7-2 shellacking, which uh, left Yaroslav Halak very, very pissed. Uh, the final three meetings, though, uh, started to turn the corner for the Bruins. Uh, they won th a game 3-0. And uh, Taylor Hall had uh, some uh, pretty epic moments. Should also remind everybody, Taylor Hall had a chance to go to the Islanders, and he chose the Bruins. Right. So if you don't, if you think I'm going to forget about that narrative, you're wrong. Uh, overtime needed to decide three of eight regular season meetings. Uh, Boston was victorious once. The Islanders were victorious on two occasions. Um, another interesting fact that I discovered you would think with the likes of Pasternak and Marshawn, Bergeron, and all of these offensive weapons that uh, the Bruins would um, be the better teams in terms of the shot clock. And I okey-doke you because they were. They outshot uh, the Islanders 33.6 to 27 uh, over the course of this eight-game series. So both Varamov and Sorokin had to be good. Um, a lot of one-goal games, and to their credit, they stood tall, and they were able to get results for their team. But Tuka Rask, as we mentioned, very, very big for the Bruins in these playoffs so far. So he's going to match Sorokin uh, save for save. Bergeron and Marshawn are going to do what they do best, and that, if anything, that Pasternak hat trick showed us that he was getting those chances before, wasn't converting, though. Now he's converting, yeah. so... He's going to probably get on a little bit of a roll. And when Pasternak goes on hot stretches, uh, they can get pretty ridiculous. So um, I think Pasternak versus Barzal is an offensive matchup that uh, will captivate a lot of people's attention throughout the course of this series. And I'm here for it. Um, the secret weapon, of course, is Taylor Hall, just because of the first round series that he's yep. had. Um, but if I had to pick a winner... I would take the Islanders. If I'm wrong, it goes seven games either way. But yeah. I'm taking the Islanders to win. Yeah, that's interesting. I forgot to give my prediction there. Uh, but first thing before we, we do that, um, I do want to credit that Anthony Bavillier has been really, really good. He's um, At least for the first game, but even in the Penguins series, he's been really good. I feel like not enough people are talking about him, so I do want to give him some just credit for that um he's been really for some reason like he had a kind of a disappointing regular season but uh he just picks it up in the uh, playoffs for some reason i don't i don't really understand it but um <laughs> but yeah he's been really good also uh jordan eberle's on the islanders uh taylor hall's on the bruins um of course those are two uh, former edmonton oilers players so that uh, if you're an oilers fan if you're watching this series, you're probably watching this with regret because um, you used to have those guys. Um, I believe they were on the same line when they were in Edmonton too. So that's an interesting uh, little storyline there too. Um, and then, uh, yeah, as for my prediction, um, I think there's, 
I, I think Sir Arkin's probably going to steal a game or two. Um, and I think Barzal's also going to go off. But, I don't know. I, I think... I feel like the, the forward groups that the Bruins have is just going to be too much for the Islanders, even though the Islanders do have a really good defense. Um, so I'm, I'm going to go with the Bruins in six. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if it goes seven. Um, but I, I have to, I have to support my boys. So, um, so I'm going Bruins with in, in six. The loyal um, supporters at Fort Never Lose will be waiting to gloat just to watch. By the way, you keep on saying Fort Never Lose. Can you explain, uh, explain the history? Because I don't understand it, and I have a feeling our listeners probably don't. I believe get it I, I've heard it a bunch of times mentioned on Twitter, and that's basically what they call the Islanders now. Oh, okay. They call it Fort Never Lose because they're very tough to beat on home ice. Okay. Okay, I see. So that's interesting, but like, there, there's just no other explanation to it. Just that it's no, nope, that's it. That's it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Interesting. Um. All right, let's go to uh, the central division here. Um, we're gonna start off with the. Uh, I guess the. Let's start off with the Florida Panthers, because um, they were the first to get eliminated. Um, they, um, although I guess we didn't really do that the last division, but whatever. Um, we'll start with the Florida Panthers. Uh, they had, you know, it was interesting, and I, t- I alluded to this, um, when I was talking about the Penguins, but a big reason why they lost was, I mean, first off, the Lightning were really, really good. Um, who knew that Nikita Kucherov, uh, would take off all of a sudden, but, um, I mean, everyone knew that. Um, so, so there, there's that. Also, um, another big reason was that, like, at first they had Sergei Bobrovsky in, um, and he didn't fit the bill. So then they went to uh, Chris Dreger uh, for the second game, and he didn't play well. Um, then they went back to Bobrovsky, and Bobrovsky didn't play well, um, even with some rest. And then, like, uh, and then, oh no, wait, they won game three. Um, and then, I guess, uh, game four, um, they went back to Bobrovsky and he started to fail. Uh, game five was when they started to go to Spencer Knight. And Spencer Knight played really, really well. Um, and um, I, I get the f- sense that if Spencer Knight played this entire time this would at least have gone to game seven I don't think you can guarantee that this would have you know they would have won it because Spencer Knight was in net because he did play in the elimination game and he he didn't look so great at that point but um but yeah there was definitely um an aspect to it where it's just like oh well once you see Spencer Knight play you're like wait a second like, they should have just had him go the first couple times. It's also kind of hard to blame uh, Joe Quenville, the coach, on this just because, like, Spencer Knight had only played, like, two games um, in the regular season, and you don't really know what you're counting, uh, what you're getting from him, and you don't want to, like, put him in and just ruin his development for the rest of your time there. So I get why they didn't do that, as well as the fact that, like, you know, that Bobrovsky's making $10 million, um, even though it's probably the worst contract in the league right now, um, you can't just, like, 
it, it, it doesn't really make sense to just not start him for game one. So I totally get that from that point, but um, it, it does make you wish that they should have just gone with Spencer Knight from the beginning. Um, and yeah, I think that was a big reason too. Also, like the Lightning are a pretty good team, obviously, um, but uh, but yeah, I, I think the Florida Panthers just uh, just they 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 did too little, too late type of things where uh, where they should have. Um, had Spencer Knight in, but they didn't. Um, also, there was a point when uh, Sam Bennett got uh, suspended for one game. Uh, Sam Bennett was a big part of their surge um, into the playoffs. Uh, when they got them, when they got him, they finally had like another like target. He was immediately their third best player, mm-hmm. um, and and all that stuff. So then, when you take him out. It felt like, oh, these were like the Panthers we'd been used to watching the last couple of years, and they kind of, you know, retreated back. And then when he comes in again, he scores like in the first couple minutes of game three. And you're like, oh, right, right, because they just added Sam Bennett. So he's been like a really good piece to them. It's just like unfortunate because he didn't play game two. Um, I mean, obviously, he should have been suspended for that, but um, I think that that was also another piece well, yeah, that and, changed. And- the, whole the, the game, the game where the play against Blake Coleman happened, they lost, and the they lost. So going down two nothing to a team that knows a thing or two about being in different situations and overcoming certain obstacles, um, going down two nothing is the last thing you want to do. And yep. I think at, at that point, they they had dug themselves a hole they couldn't dig out of. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a good point. It's it is tough, especially against the defending Stanley Cup champions who've been yeah. here before and and know what what it takes. So, I think there is that aspect of it too. Um, in terms of free agents this year, um, it's kind of pretty notable. Uh, there's Sam Bennett, an RFA. Anthony Duclair is also an RFA, and Lucas Walmark. Um, I guess also Yuho Lamico. Um, and then on the defensive side of things, you have Lucas Carlson, uh, Noah Juleson, and Gustav Forsling, as well as for goaltenders, you have Sam uh, Montebo. As for UFAs, uh, the, the biggest one that they probably have to decide um, is Chris Dreger. Um, is it Dreger or Dreger? I keep on saying, pronouncing it wrong. Chris Dreger. Dreger? Okay. Um, so Chris Dreger is probably their biggest UFA that they have to... Uh, figure out what their what their future is with him. Um, there's also Alex Wenberg um, and Nikita Gusev. Uh, Scott Wilson's a UFA, and Brandon Montour are also UFAs as well. Um, so, so yeah, the, I, I I do wonder what they're gonna do in the future. Um, you know, I, I feel like the Panthers are in kind of in a weird situation um, in Florida because. You have about five more years left of this ten million contract for Sergei Bobrovsky. You have a pr- pretty promising goaltender in Spencer Knight that you'll have for cheap uh, for two more of those years, um, and so you have to like. I would assume they're going to have Bobrovsky and Spencer Knight be like a tandem for these next two years. Um, however. Chris Dreiger, or Dreiger, was was really good. Um, or, like, you know, 
who's better than Bobrovsky. Um, so, so I do wonder if they, they could probably trade him um, before he turns into a UFA or, you know, maybe they give them up in the Seattle draft or something. It's not like Dreger, Dreger, Dreger is so, um, so old. He's only 27. Um, so he still has some left in the tank, but I think they're in an unfortunate situation because they've already invested a lot in Spencer Knight and in Sergei Bobrovsky already that, um, that's Chris Dreger is going to be the odd man out in this case. So I wonder what they're going to do there. And of course, they also, they should re-sign Sam Bennett because they found the guy that's going to replace Vincent Trocek on that second line center, um, finally with Sam Bennett. So I wonder um, how much they're going to pay him. Uh, He's probably going to get a raise. Um, Anthony DeClaire, they probably should also sign him too. So they have some decisions to make on the on the forward group that, like, when you look at it back, it's, it seems like they're not going to be able to afford Chris Dreger um, in the long run. Yeah, so, well, the interesting thing about Dreger is that his price tag's uh, 850000 like right. not even a million. So it, I don't think – I think maybe you bring him back at, like – I don't know, a million, 1.2 million around there. Yeah. Uh, just in case Spencer Knight needs, you, you figure Spencer Knight needs a bit of time in the AHL. You don't want to rush him. Yeah, yeah, um, this was a unique situation because of the COVID pandemic and the AHL. And um, there were a couple of teams that opted out at the start of the year. And I believe that affected uh, Florida's um, pipeline of prospects too. So, um I, I definitely can see Bobrovsky and uh, Spencer Knight being the full-time tandem next year, but I think bringing back Chris Drieger as an insurance policy, at least to start, would be good. And if you lose him, well, then that's unfortunate that you don't have him anymore. But at the very least, I'd rather have like an insurance policy in case something happens with their tandem, um, just in case. So I think Chris Drieger will find his way back in Florida. Nikita Gusev, I mean, if you bring him back at a million dollars, I'll take that. Another one year, one million. I don't know if he had enough time to really establish himself in the Panthers lineup. Uh, Sam Bennett absolutely did. I think he's staying put. Duclair at the right price, I think so. Uh, Walmart, even though he's an RFA, not sure what they see in him. Forsling heard a lot of positive things on Twitter about Forsling and how his game has improved. It might not show it on the stat sheet, but I think there's enough upside to bring him back there for sure. Um, Montembeau, now that you have Spencer Knight, I don't see him um, earning another contract when he becomes a UFA. They just bring him back for AHL depth, but once he's a UFA, I, I think his time in Florida is probably up at that point. Uh, Brandon Montour is also going to be interesting because um, I think as a depth defenseman, he had a lot of good moments with Florida. Um, just when you consider the body of work in Anaheim and in Buffalo, the time that he was there, uh, I'm not quite sure exactly what he is. Um, so if the opportunity presents itself, then yeah, sure. He's, he's great to have, to bring back, um, especially when you consider that Stroman and Yandel, 
um, and how their contracts have aged. There's yeah. there's no reason why uh, Florida can trade away a few defensemen if it means keeping Montour and putting him in an ideal spot. Because I do think uh, Stroman and, uh, and, and Yandel, they had their moments of glory, but they also uh, had a lot of not-so-good moments, uh, particularly Stroman. So... I I kind of feel like uh, one of one or both of them could be on their way out um, in order to keep the death pieces that they have. One of which Alex Wenberg uh, showed a lot of great strides. Looked close the closest thing to the prime Alex Wenberg that we saw in Columbus, which right. is good. Yeah. Um. So I, I I'm really interested to see what Bill Zito does this off season because last off season. Obviously, you brought in Verhage, who's who's going to need a new contract soon. But you also have to keep in mind that Barkov's going to be a free agent in 2022. And it's absolutely pivotal that the Florida Panthers keep him. Yep. They made a lot of great strides this year. They need to make more in order for him to like really commit to the team long term. If they take a step back this year... I don't think it's a slam dunk that Barkov stays. I think he could seriously test the open market. So yeah. I think this offseason could be a good test of how much the Panthers believe in Barkov, believe in their team, and they they could be some low-key power move. They could be a low-key power move in the offseason. Um, I don't know exactly what they're going to do, Um but I, I definitely think they'll be up to a lot, and they're going to be one of the teams that I'll be keeping a close eye on in terms of what changes that they make. And I think the health of Aaron Eckblad is also going to be a primary mm. concern moving forward because we still don't know if he's going to be ready or not. Like it, it seems like from a trajectory standpoint, he should be back. But what he, the injury that he suffered in Dallas that that looked pretty grim when it first happened. And I would imagine it's going to be a tough injury for him to rehab. So, um, so one thing to consider, like you did mention, all these free agents that you feel like they should resign and all that stuff, and they did all have pretty good seasons to be fair. But uh, you look at their uh, final cap space; uh, they have one, according to Cap Friendly, it's one point six million um, they have left in cap space, and that's not including. Set the seven point five million that Aaron Eckblad's going to be making, so they're they're already over the cap already, um, even without Aaron Eckblad. So, um, yes, I, I agree that you would like to keep Chris Drieger uh, if you can, but I feel like he could be making more um, elsewhere. Um, other than what you were mentioning, if you keep him for uh, one million, and you know, I mean, he loves it here. Great, that's that's awesome. But um, I get the feeling that he could get maybe like three million somewhere else, um, or four million somewhere else. So I, I feel like um, he's gone, just unfortunately. Um, and I, I would imagine their biggest priority is signing Stan Bennett and Anthony Duclair, um, and even you know Alex Wenberg to some extent, but. I, yeah, I just when you look at their cap situation, they're stung by the fact that Sergey Bobrovsky is making ten million. Maybe they trade Keith Yandel. I know he was healthy scratch. It doesn't seem like John Quenville loves Keith Yandel, so maybe they trade Keith Yandel. That could be a interesting move elsewhere. Um, but um, but yeah, it seems like 
their their cap situation to be um, more interesting. Um, I will agree though that I feel like they're going to make some move um, to to make up for their their uh, f- phenomenal season this year. But um, but yeah, I, I I'm more intrigued just how they're going to work with this cap situation because they're they're pretty tight. Just don't give away forwards like Carter Verhage to Seattle for nothing. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. that's the worst thing they can do. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. That's a good point because if you remember last time, they gave Jonathan Marchessault, Riley Smith, and those. I think I think those weren't even the entry draft people. Oh no, no. Jonathan Marchessault was drafted. Uh, was the Florida selection for Vegas, but like they also gave them like Riley Smith, and it was like a mess in order for them to keep someone who's not even on the team anymore. I don't think. Um, so, so yeah, that that did not go well for Florida. They also lost their coach too, uh, Gerard Gallant, um, who was the coach at the time. Um, all right, so uh, now we are talking about Nashville here. Um, yeah. I think this was kind of like a combination of like um, Nashville. It didn't like even when I mean we talked about this last week, but like even when Nashville was winning or you know was doing well, they just it it really just felt like the Hurricanes were in control of the entire um, play. And even though this went to six games, it was pretty much just like Roman Yossi. Uh, I'm sorry, not Roman Yossi, UC Saros, and the rest of the, versus the Carolina Hurricanes. And, you know, to take some credit, like, you know, uh, Matt Duchesne actually played pretty well. Um, There was, uh, I I mean, I think uh, there was a couple of other ones, Michael Granlin, Ryan Ellis, uh, Ryan Johansson had a good uh, season, a playoffs, um, I, I'm a big fan of Luke Cunning, even though he only had two goals, one of which was an overtime goal. Um, Matt Duchesne, I mentioned. Philip Forsberg had his moments at times. Uh, Roman Yossi, of course. Um, so, but, like, I don't know. I feel like there's, like, something's missing where they should actually start to rebuild, even though they made the playoffs. But I feel like if it was a regular season, they wouldn't make it because – Central Division, um, for, you know, I'm talking about the old version of the Central Division, it's pretty tough. Um, They didn't have to deal with Colorado. They didn't have to deal with Winnipeg. They didn't have to deal with Dallas. Well, I guess they did have to deal with Dallas. Uh, They didn't have to deal with St. Louis, um, Minnesota. um, And I feel like those, those four teams in particular are better than Nashville is. So... It's, it's going to be, um, I feel like next year is going to be the time when they start to actually like start to rebuild. Um, and um, I, I'll be curious to see what they're going to do with that. But I, if, if John, David Poyle was smart, he would probably put some trades um, that would be in a rebuilding mood. You know, maybe he trades off Ryan Johansson or I guess that, He'd be kind of hard to trade from his contract standpoint, but but maybe you trade. Uh, I'm looking down the list here. Uh, yeah, I guess Philip Forsberg or Granlin. Well, Granlin's going to be a UFA. Um, maybe you trade Matthias Ekholm finally. 
Um, or uh, it's tough to trade Ryan Ellis with his contract, and you don't trade Roman Yossi. So, um, yeah, I don't know who you would trade there. But um, the good news, though, for the Predators, though, is that uh, it looks like UC Saros is going to be the real deal. Um, and, um, and he's going to be an RFA this year, so I'm sure he's going to get paid. But they have a lot of expiring contracts this next year that they can afford to lose, um, which I'll get into in a second um, after you s- start speaking, Steve. But, um, but yeah, it does seem like UC Saros is, is legitimately pretty good. Which is interesting because this is the same team that drafted Yaroslav Askarov, who's also going to be pretty good in a couple of years. But um, they're going to be in good shape in goal because uh, UC Saros is there. Um, and it seems like he's he's the real deal. Um, it's just you need to build the, the other players. Um, and as good as, I mean, I was telling you this off air, but as good as Roman Yossi is, um, he shouldn't be your best skater. Uh it like it should go to a forward like that that just shows how like a problem in the organization that Roman Yossi always gets all these points which is good if you're a defenseman um and he's you know he's good on the defensive side of things as well but um but like I don't know maybe Philip Forsberg should show up maybe Matt Duchesne maybe Ryan Johansson should show up uh Victor Arvidsson should show up uh prove that they're worth that contract um, and they haven't been able to do that just yet. So um, something needs to happen. I'm not sure what, but I, I feel like they need um, they need to rebuild. See, part of me thinks that David Poyle is not going to go that far, but I would expect some form of a retool because they can't just trust the this core group of guys to get it done because it hasn't worked out. Like, if it wasn't for Saros, they they don't even make the playoffs this year. And they certainly don't force Carolina into four straight OTs, two of which they won in double overtime, game three and game four, thanks in large part to Saros. And he was the lone bright spot other than Roman Yossi. I will say, though, I heard a lot about Matt Duchesne's playoff performance, and, and that was good. It seemed like he was starting to find his old form. But where have we seen this? The inconsistent offensive production of Matt Duchesne. Saw it a little bit in Colorado. Saw it in Ottawa at the start. Then he goes to Columbus after a hot start with Ottawa. He plays all right, but not at the level that he was playing at in Ottawa. And then you look at his time with Nashville, and the inconsistency has continued. So I don't know necessarily if he's the guy that they trade away. I see Ryan Johansson as... The guy they probably trade away, um, mostly because I don't think Ryan Johansson has produced well enough over the past couple of years. Although Matt Duchesne's regular season this year, he was banged up, and when he was playing, he was average to mediocre in terms of offensive production. So I, I think either Johansson or Duchesne get dealt, but I don't know how many how many teams would be willing to take on their contracts. So I think the easier guy to be to move would be Victor Arvidsson. I think Philip Forsberg is the main guy that they keep around because uh, yep. while he has been inconsistent at times, I think he was one of their better forwards this year. So um, I, I don't know if I give up on 
a guy like Philip Forsberg for that reason. Matthias Ekholm, now this is an interesting one because, yes, you could get a lot in return for Matthias Ekholm because of his low cap hit. The fact that he's going into an expiring con- uh, a contract year, that his contract expires after next year. But David Boyle's on the record saying his number one priority during the offseason is to find a way to keep Matthias Ekholm in Nashville. I think at that point, and while it might be difficult, Ryan Ellis' contract out of the three defensemen is probably the one that gets traded away. Yep. Um, if they can make it happen, that is. Um, I also look at the death players that they have, like Luke Kunin, who did have a, a couple of significant uh, games uh, for the Predators in the playoffs and throughout the season, too. Um, Colton Sissons is another name. Uh, Callie Yarncroke, Eric Halla, who is uh, pending UFA. Uh, Rocco Grimaldi as well. Nick Cousins. I don't know if either of those guys can elevate their game to the point where they can get some consistent secondary scoring. And that's where I think a guy like Blake Coleman, and I will mention Blake Coleman um, repeatedly throughout the episode, because I think a lot of teams could use a guy like Blake Coleman who adds a little bit of chippiness, but also packs a major offensive punch for a second line, third line player. And I think that's the type of guy that Nashville needs more of. Yes, their star players need to produce, but their bottom six guys, I think, really need to contribute. And one of the guys that was able to take a step up was Ily Tolvanen, who they've been waiting uh, for quite some time to do that. Um, I also think guys like Dante Fabro and uh, Jeremy Davies, they could uh, also yep. see a little bit of a nice time increase depending on what they do with their defense. Um, I like what I've seen from uh, Tanner Janot, who has become a... Uh, a guy that scores the odd timely goal adds a bit of bite to their bottom six. Um, David Ferentz, um, another defenseman uh, that, that I forgot to mention when talking about Davies and Fabro. He's another guy uh, that enters the fold. Maybe they start him off in the AHL. Maybe they start him off in the show and see what he does. Um, the one thing I don't expect to see is buyouts because last offseason they bought out Santini and Turris. The Santini buyout has one year left the uh kyle tourist buyout let's see how many years one two three four oh seven years wow. at two million per that's crazy yeah. oh that's not good nope. so um yeah uh i i i don't think other than trades there's any way for david Boyle to wiggle his way out of this financial mess um so i do think the more logistical way would be rebuild Brett, but I think a part of there's a part of David Boyle that still thinks he can win with this group. Not this group as it is, but the majority of the players in this group, he still thinks they have a shot at winning, especially if Saros continues to play like this, but he's definitely going to need to make not just one noticeable move, two or three uh, to, to kind of get things going again for Nashville, because it's not going to get any easier, as you mentioned, with the likes of Minnesota that have improved, with St. Louis that probably has a lot to prove after how this year ended. Yeah. And then, of course, Winnipeg, what they did this year. And the juggernaut uh, that is the Colorado Avalanche, too. So, um, yeah, it, it's going to be a very interesting offseason for the Preds, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, you, you did mention a couple things. Uh, you did mention that 
Like maybe they trade Ryan Johansson or Ryan Ellis. Um, but like the thing is, is like Ryan Johansson is going to be a free agent in 2025. Uh, yeah. Ryan Ellis is going to be a free agent like even further than that. I think in 2027 or something. <laughs> His contract's so long that it doesn't even show it on the Cap Friendly <laughs> Predators page. So yeah. uh, so and it's quite a big cap hit. So I feel like. If you're going to trade those guys, I don't really have a problem with that. But uh, you, you're going to have to, like, it, it's going to be tough to, I don't feel like a lot of teams are going to want to take on long-term contracts like that with that much cap hit. So you, and you can't really get much anyways. Um, and uh, which is why I feel like maybe Victor Arvidsson makes sense or Matthias Ekholm because, you know, they're kind of at a lesser contract value. Uh, Arvidsson's making 4.2, and whereas Matthias Ekholm's making 3.7 million uh, per year. Um, but their you know their contracts out relatively soon. Whereas Ekholm's uh, done in 2022, and uh, Arvidsson's out in 2024. So uh, that's that's the least doable. But it's. Um, but like, yeah, uh, Matt Duchesne is uh, going to be a free agent in 2026. Um, so, so that's it's just uh, it's tough to tough to deal that kind of long term contract like that. Um, so, so there's that. Uh, the other thing that I do want to mention before we go on um, is that like I do want to end it on a positive note because they do have stuff to look forward to. Eli Tolvanen, um, he's had his moments, and, like, he hasn't been as good as hyped just yet, but he's definitely, like, shown that he he, he deserves to be in the NHL, and, and who knows, maybe eventually he'll be, like, what he was in the KHL. Um, also, Yakov Trenin, um, he had a pretty good um, last game in, um, in the playoffs. Um, I am curious to see what they do with Philip Tomasino, um, he looks like he's going to be pretty good. Um, Tanner Juneau, as you mentioned, like he, he provided pretty decent depth um, and made some timely goals uh, for them in the end there. Um, and then, as you mentioned, their defense. Uh, David Ferentz, I, I've watched him play at BU. He's, he's going to be pretty good. Uh, Dante Fabro, I don't know what they do with him. Um, he's another guy who's in, who was at BU as well, but um, I feel... I, I thought he would make more strides uh, this season, but it hasn't shown just yet. Um, so maybe it will be different one more year, but we'll see. Uh, Jeremy Davies is also good. I also saw him play in Harvard. Um, so he's um, he's going to be pretty good. But, yeah, I, I feel like they once they make a trade, once they trade Ekholm or Ryan Ellis, we'll see more of David Ferentz and Jeremy Davies um, somewhere in the lineup. Um, yeah, so yeah, I think I think about. in terms of the UC Saros situation too. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to go on a limb to say that the term that they give him is going to dictate how long they think it'll take Astrov to get acquainted with the North American style of hockey and be ready to be the number one. Um, I'm not going to go that far, but I think the sweet spot is four to five years. Anything more than that. Yep. And I start to I start to wonder if they're about to say, make the same mistake as Florida did. Although yeah. they won't be paying Saros ten million a year, so I guess 
it won't nearly be as bad as what Florida did with Bobrovsky. And not to mention that, like, Bobrovsky was, like, 30 years old when he signed yeah. the contract, whereas <laughs> Saros is 26, so it's not like, you know, they still have a few more years where he's going to be in his prime. Um, as for RFAs, uh, Saros is one, the big one. Uh, Dante yeah. Fabro, Jeremy Davies, Ben Harper, uh, Eli Tolvanen, Rem Pitlick, um, Matthew Oliver, uh, Tanner Janot, and Michael McCarron are RFAs. So a decent group of RFAs, um, but I, I'm sure they'll keep some and, and uh, get rid of others. Um, as for UFAs, Michael Granlin, Eric Halla, Brad Richardson, um, Eric Goost, uh, Goodbranson, and Tyler Lewington. Um, and then for UFAs, you also have Pecorine, um, who's going to be UFA. I imagine he'll get a decrease um, in salary. I think there was talk that he might retire, but I'm not, I don't want to confirm that either. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised considering he's 38 years old. Um, so, so there's definitely that chance that this is the last time we saw Pecorine um, in the NHL. Yeah, I, uh, while I, I feel that uh, David Poyle is, is going to be loyal to Pecorine, and if they bring him back and they're not going to trade him, I think the wise thing for the Predators would be to go out and get a 1B goalie to provide yep. uh, a reliable backup option for Saros. Not to say that Pecorine can't do that, but just because of his age, I think that's the better route for the for the Preds to at, yep. at least um, be a close to a relevant contender I because I never considered them a relevant contender I'm just gonna be like oh they're gonna put up a good fight against Carolina but I don't expect them to win right right, uh, right. They, they 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 need to turn into that team that's expected to win series again yeah um and I I think good Branson maybe comes back at like a million per year um I don't I don't know if I go as far as to say he gets a two-way contract but uh, that cap hit is going to have to go down in order for him to come back. They're not bringing him back at $4 million per. No way. Right. Yeah, I could see them getting like a 1B situation or so that they don't like ruin uh, UC Saros when they actually need him. But yeah, um, yeah I can see that. So uh, we're going to preview uh, the Carolina-Tampa series, which is actually a game that's going on right now. It's one nothing Tampa right now. Um, uh, Braden Point gets that goal with an assist from Victor Hedman and Nikita Kucherov, but it's still, you know, it's uh, the middle of the second period, so there's still some time for Carolina. Um, so yeah, it was it was interesting, and we talked about this before. I mean, last last week with Nikita Kucherov, um, he has 11, he, had a, he finished with eleven points in these six games, um. And, uh, yeah, it just showed that he's, he's top three, top five best players in the league. And um, that's just, like, quite the um, acquisition that you can get at the end of the, um, you know, just during the playoffs. So, so even if, you know, I mean, it is kind of lame that the NHL is allowing the Lightning to do this, but um, – because like they're so far ahead in terms of the cap space, but um, but yeah, it, it's it's uh, it's it makes the Lightning that much harder to defeat um, uh, during these playoffs because they have uh, this guy in their sleeve kind of thing. He's been their X factor 
um, even though he's been <laughs> he's he's their best player. Um, so there's that. Um, and um, but like I think he was a big reason why they won. Um, but you know also uh, Andre Vasilevsky was also pretty good. He had a 9.29 save percentage, a 2.64 GAA. Um, Steven Stamkos also showed up. He was injured towards the end of the year, but um, it seemed like he's not rusty either. Eight points in six games. Um, yeah, I could just go down the list here. Alex Kilhorn has eight points. Victor Hedman had eight points. Braden Point had six. Uh, Ryan McDonough had four. Anthony Sorelli and Eric Chernak also had four. So, yeah, it just, like, they have loads and loads of depth, and that's what makes them so dominant and scary. Uh, it's like, you, you just run down, it's like, oh, that's that's a pretty good player. Um, like, even someone like Ross Colton, who's on their fourth line, um, and he gets, like, 12 minutes of ice time, he still, he gets, like, two, point, two goals in the six games that they played against uh, Florida. And, uh, yeah, it's just... It's just insane. Um, it's it's pretty unfair, but um, it is what it is. Um, as for Carolina, they're they're I mean they struggled a little bit when it was um, in Nashville, but but for the most part, like as I was mentioning before, um, it really did feel like Carolina was in control the entire time. It's just they ran into a very hot goalie in UC Saros, um, and. Um, but like, even still, like you have Alex Ndalkovic, he was good in his own right. He had a 9.22 save percentage and a GAA of 2.22. Um, and then, uh, like Sebastian Ajo just kept on scoring goals. Um, like he couldn't stop it at some point. It felt like, um, even though it was five goals in these six games, uh, but he had two assists. Uh, so that's. That goes to seven points in six games. Jordan Stahl, he gets the game winner, um, the series winner, even. But he had four goals um, in the in six games. Martin Nikash, he had a phenomenal game six. Dougie Hamilton, uh, he had four points in six games. Brock McGinn also looked pretty good um, <clears throat> in his limited time there. Uh, he had uh, four points. In six games, three of those were goals. Um, one thing I did notice that I feel like should be better, or two things I noticed, uh, Andrei Sveshnikov, um, he had three points in six games, that's fine, but I feel like that should be better, um, especially if Carolina needs to win yeah. for this series. Um, I mean, it's, it's decent, but it's like it needs to be better because he's one of their better players. Um, Vincent Trocek, he had three points in six games. Tavo Teravainen had two points in these six games. Um, and, yeah, so I feel like those three in particular need to be better because that was a big reason why they they are at where they are at um, because those guys have been good. But, um, yeah, something needs to happen with them. But Sebastian Ajo is legitimately one of the, like, the best players in the game, maybe, like, top ten, top five even. Um, and, he's yeah, he's very good. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, if Carolina is expected to beat Tampa, um, all those guys need to, to get going um, pretty quickly. Um, so I'm I I have I still have some faith in Tampa. I mean, sorry, in Carolina, but it's not going to be easy. I'm going to take Carolina in seven. 
Carolina in seven. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, so what's interesting about this playoff matchup, it's the first time ever these two teams have squared off in the Stanley Cup playoffs. That's not the most shocking part of all this. These two teams played in the same division for 14 seasons. Um, I don't know if many people remember this, but uh, both the Carolina Hurricanes and Tampa Bay Lightning, before the division realignment in 2013-14, they were in the NHL Southeast Division from 98-99 to 2012-2013. And um, in all-time regular season meetings versus Carolina – Tampa Bay holds a 59-37-9 record along with eight ties against the Hurricanes. Um, This season series, though, it was pretty evenly matched. Uh, Both teams won four games. Uh, Both sides also gained uh, an OT loser point. Uh, Tampa Bay was outscored by a minimalistic 18-17, which again goes to show you how tight this series was. They were also outshot 32.4-27.9, to over the course of the eight games played, power play and penalty kill for both teams in this season series, near identical. So in terms of special teams, edge, not really going to find a significant edge there. Uh, Vasilevsky against Florida, as you mentioned, Brett, absolute monster. The main backbone of Tampa Bay's defense, and I would argue uh, Tampa was lucky to win round one because Vasilevsky was so good. If Florida's goaltending was better, um, I could honestly see the Panthers winning that series if they match Vasilevsky save for save. Like, even that 6-5 game, they gave up a lot of glorious chances that uh, Vasilevsky was able to stop. Uh, a couple of them was was huge. And it gives you a boost. It allows your offense to play your game. The reason why Tampa's depth scores, there are all-star superstars, were able to produce is because they know if they get caught flat-footed, Vasilevsky is going to be there to bail him out. Um, and that's why if he gets hurt, it's going to be really tough for Tampa Bay to overcome that because we've seen this same Tampa Bay team play with Curtis McElhinney as the last line of defense, and they haven't looked as mighty compared to Vasilevsky. Um, whereas you look at the Carolina Hurricanes with Alex Nedeljkovic or Peter Morasic or James Remmer, it doesn't matter who they have as goalie, they're still finding ways to win games. Although Nedeljkovic, uh, in that round one series against Nashville, he was very strong and really cemented himself as their guy, which is good. Um, I feel both teams are finding ways to win. They're getting hot at the right time. Steven Stamko says game six against Florida, arguably one of Tampa Bay's best this season. Um, But the Hurricanes are just as resilient. Like I said, with the OT games against Nashville, there was a couple of times in game five, I think, they didn't lead the whole game until they won it in overtime and they were able to find a way uh, to win game six as well. Uh, Just by sticking to their game plan uh, to battle back, uh, to stay in the hunt, something that Tampa Bay has done for years. So it would not shock me if uh, the Islander, uh, not the Islanders, the Hurricanes um, were able to win this series, even though, they're going up against another hot goalie. They had to deal with, as we mentioned before, Brett, UC Saros in round one. They're able to beat him. Getting four L's on Vasilevsky's forehead, that's going to be a tall task. Uh, but I think the Hurricanes are up for it, and they're going to do it. Hurricanes in seven. You also have Hurricanes in seven. Nice. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
it's it, it should be a fun series. Like we we probably won't get or we we won't get the McDavid Matthews uh, series that I was dreaming of, but. Uh, Tampa and Carolina is probably going to be pretty exciting. Yeah, that, um, so, that should be exciting yeah. from start to finish, for sure. Yeah, exactly. And so will uh, Colorado and Vegas as well, which is the next division we're t- going to talk about. But first, we're going to do the obituary of those <laughs> of wh- who those teams beat. Um, mm-hmm. So we're going to start off with St. Louis, because that was the first team that got eliminated. Um, and that was, uh, yeah, St. Louis. Uh, they got swept by Colorado. Um, yeah, this was one of those ones where, like, like yes, it was a, a sweep, um, but, like, even, like, it didn't even feel like there was any games that uh, St. Louis had a chance in. I guess there was one at, like, in game three, but, uh, where they showed some form of life, but other than that, it didn't really feel like they, they showed anything else at all. It should also be mentioned that they didn't have a lead at any point in the series yeah. until game four, and they lost in four straight. That's right. I forgot about that. I should have mentioned that. <laughs> but I guess game four was when they they almost won, but they didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, so St. Louis loses. Um, it's kind of, I guess it's kind of like a similar thing where um, they, they just didn't... Uh, like, their goaltending wasn't great, but it's hard to blame your goaltending when your forwards weren't great either. Um, it was interesting, too, because, like, you know, they only scored, I think they only got, like, let's see here, seven goals in total in these four games. So, <laughs> that's that's not great. Um, and um, what was nice, though, is that, like, uh, Vladimir Tarasenko, uh, he scored two goals in game four. Um, and it looks like he was getting goings and showed signs of what he used to be like. Um, I'm curious to see how consistent he'll be in the long run, but, um, so maybe we'll see that, but, but yeah, so, um, yeah, Jordan Biddington didn't really play great, but, um, it's also, again, as I mentioned, it's, it's tough to say when (laughs) their leading point scorer, was a tie between Robert Thomas and Ryan O'Reilly, and they both had three points. Um, so, uh, so that's that's just how it goes. Um, as for free agencies, they have a quite a list of them. Um, for RFAs, there's Zachary Sanford, Ivan Barbashev, Robert Thomas, uh, Dakota Joshua, Jordan Cairo, um, and then you have Vince Dunn as well as RFAs. Um, as for UFAs, you have Jaden Schwartz, Tyler Bozak, Mike Hoffman, uh, Austin Pognancy, Pognancy, uh, Nathan Walker, and Mitch Greinke, um, as well as John Gillis as well. Um, oh, and I see here that Alex Steen and Carl Gunnarsson are also on UFAs, but they're on LTIR as well, so... It should it should also be noted. I'm pretty sure that Alex Steen um, is already retiring, uh, so okay, he's off the books um, and not coming back. So it's like a Mark Savard type situation. Got it. Okay. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um. So, um. So, anyways, his like his five point seven million that was on the cap is already off. Um. So, so that's significant. Um. But yeah, so I, I guess like I could see them signing, uh, re-signing Jaden Schwartz, 
Uh, maybe they re-signed Mike Hoffman. He didn't have a terrible year, but um, in terms of RFAs, I feel like that's when they're going to have to make some decisions. Um, Zachary Sanford and Ivan Barbashev are pretty good, but they're, you know, they're fourth liners, so you don't want to pay them too much. Um, of course, I, I did like what I saw of, out of Jordan Tyru. I feel like there's more there, um, but um, we'll see what how much he gets. And, of course, Vince Dunn, um, I wonder what he, what he goes for. But, yeah, it should be an interesting offseason for them. I feel like we're saying that about every team, but um, they it'll be interesting to see what the Blues do because I feel like they could – start to rebuild a little bit, but um, especially when, like, we don't know how healthy Tarasenko is going to be, and it's not like he's young either. He's 29 years old, Um, but, um, but yeah, I I, I don't know. I I feel like they could maybe kick the can some more, Um, and as you mentioned before, um, like, they just weren't the same without Alex Petrangelo. Um, he was a key reason why they, they've been so good for so long. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, it's looking like they could be, um, out of the playoffs next year. Man, uh, I, I told you what, what would happen when Petrangelo left, didn't I? I I said, I said the blues were going to take a step back. If they had any sort of formidable competition, they wouldn't have even made the playoffs this year. True. But they had Arizona, they had San Jose, they had Anaheim, and they had LA, who all missed the playoffs. So by default, they they were the fourth best team. Um, that's not going to work out so well next year. Again, like we mentioned with Nashville, I would argue the Blues. I don't, I don't. The Blues might be in a tougher spot than the Preds, honestly. Yeah. Although, no, I, I wouldn't go that far because when I look at the situation with their roster, they're not saddled with bad contracts. True. Like the the most long term deals that they have are on the back end with Justin Falk and uh, Tory Krug. But when you look at uh, their forward groups, you have Ryan O'Reilly and Alex Petrangelo at seven point five million dollar cap hits. Those have two years left on them after this season ends. And then you look at the most uh, tenured player. I believe that's um, that's Braden Shin, and they just signed him to an eight-year extension. So I think that that contract now has uh, seven years left. Yep. Beyond that, either this year or next year, all the Blues forwards are going to need new contracts. That includes Mike Hoffman this year. That includes Jaden Schwartz this year. That's about uh, 9.35 million cap hit off the books. Those two right there. Bozak, there's 5 million there. Um, and and Gunnarsson on the blue line, that's 1.75 million. So um, at the very least, the Blues have flexibility and they have options where if they don't feel like this guy's a part of their future, they, they have flexibility to either move him or not re-sign him. Mike Hoffman, I honestly don't know if he's the right fit. And I hear the team wants to bring him back. I, I Leading up to the trade deadline, I thought they were probably better off trading him. And I, I don't think a, a guy like Mike Hoffman, I mean, when he's on his game, 
I, I think he can be a deadly sniper in this league. But there were times where he was in the, in the doghouse with, with Craig Berube, the coach. So I, I, I don't think that re-signing Mike Hoffman long-term would be the, the right play. If, if they give him another yeah. year and see how it works, I guess that couldn't hurt. Um, I don't know if Jaden Schwartz offensively has done enough to stay with the Blues. I think leadership-wise, he's done plenty. And he's a guy that um, the Blues are better off having there. Tyler Bozak, I mean, he's been a good depth guy for them, but I don't think he's worth $5 million. So if they bring him back, it's probably going to be for a lesser price tag because you have Zach Sanford, who's an RFA at $1.5 million. You have Barbashev, who's a great spark plug for them in the bottom six, $1.475 million. That's his cap hit, RFA this year. And then Robert Thomas on his entry level is probably going to get at least $3 million, I would think, even on a two-year or three-year bridge. I would say Jordan Cairo gets around 2 to $2.5 million on a bridge deal, too. Um, I, I don't think he's earned enough to get more than that, but he's shown enough upside uh, for the Blues to at least commit to him somewhat. And I, I think if there are if there are players that they move on from, there are three that come to mind. Uh, One of them is probably a wild card, but it wouldn't shock me, David Perron. And I know a lot of people are going to say, well, he was their leading scorer, and he wasn't playing in an ounce of time in this series because he was in COVID protocol the whole time. Yes, very true. Getting a guy of his caliber... With one year left at $4 million, there are a lot of teams that would be willing to take on David Perron right now. Whereas um, when they signed him to that four-year deal, he was coming off a very good season with Vegas, but that was probably the best season he had had to that point. The ceiling is pretty high with David Perron, where the Blues could get some pretty decent assets for him. Um, And I think the same goes with Vince Dunn because of all of the blue line depth that they have. Probably the biggest name that they could dangle with a year left on his deal is Colton Pareko because you've committed a lot of money in term to Justin Falk and to uh, Tori Krug, as I mentioned. But you also have guys like Scott Perinovich in the system yep. uh, that didn't really play a lot this year and I think could have a very big future for them. So I, I, I think there's ways for the Blues to improve their roster. But... I, I think there are going to be some noteworthy changes this time because when, I, again, they're like the Washington Capitals where I think they've lost that playoff edge that they had in 2019, that the Caps had in 2018, and they lost to Vancouver round one last year. They lost very quickly to the Avs this year. They were no match for Colorado. They, they're they more than one piece away from being contenders. Yep. They're, they're good enough to get into the playoffs this year, but beyond this year, I don't know what else they can do, and I don't know if they're a playoff team. So they have to do something um, to to kind of get themselves back on track because they, they definitely took a step back this year. Yeah, I mean, kind of like uh, Nashville, like they're going to go back to the Central this next season, and um, yes, they did have to face Colorado, um, but they didn't have to face like the Nashvilles, the uh, Winnipeg's, uh, Chicago, Dallas, 
Um, so, so yeah, they're, they're kind of in a similar situation as Nashville where like I could see them, um, like not doing so well this next season because who knows? Um, and yeah, and as for Mike Hoffman, this is the last thing before we move on. Um, but I, I noticed that, um, because I, I, I was just looking at his stats. He had... He had actually a decent year. He had 17 goals, uh, 36 points in 52 games. So I still feel like there is some left in the tank, even though, like, as you mentioned, like, he was in the doghouse for a bit. He had 15 minutes of ice time. But I still feel like there's something there. And um, so I, I feel like they might um, resign him. But, yeah, I guess I wouldn't be surprised if they just uh, part ways um, and, and uh, move on. So... We'll see. That should be an interesting aspect of it. Um, all right, let's go to Minnesota here. Um, they're kind of in a bright spot here because uh, they um, – it, it felt like at the beginning of the year we were just thinking, like, yes, they'll have Kirill Kaprizov and maybe we'll see a bit of Marco Rossi, but uh, they w- we weren't really expecting them to do too much because – um, you know, just all the moves that they made over the last couple of years just show that they were going to rebuild. So we just assumed that that meant that they were going to be one of the wor- worst teams in the in the division. But um, but Kirill Kaprizov has been as good as advertised, um, and uh, he kind of willed them into the playoffs. Um, and even when they made the playoffs, we were just thinking like, okay, like they probably aren't as good as Vegas or Colorado, but like you mentioned before, the Western Division is not good. So um, it's an achievement on their own that they they were able to make the playoffs, and they you know they took uh, the the Knights uh, to seven games, which is um, impressive considering the fact that they weren't you know supposed to be good. Um, and um, and so so I think like you know anything that happened in the playoffs was just gravy at that point uh cam talbot pretty much kept them into the series uh he had a 923 save percentage and a gaa of 2.45 um his uh, in terms of the skaters a lot of players had three points in these seven games uh zach parise i guess yet he, he was injured for part of it so he only played in four games but he still had three points uh jared spurgeon uh matt zuccarello kaprizov Eric Sinek, uh, Greenway, Jonas Brodeen, Matt Dumba, all had three, all had three points. And then I, I guess I can read all the players who had uh, two and one point. Uh, Nico Sturm, Marcus Foligno, Kevin Fiala, and Ryan Hartman had two points. And then one point was Ryan Suter and Kalen Addison. Um, so, um, yeah, that was the list. Oh, and Nick Bukestad had, had one point. Uh, point as well um so yeah that was the list there but um yeah in terms of uh, i i feel like they have a bright future because they have uh kaprizov in the mix uh they also have marco rossi to look forward to who, who uh hopefully he recovers uh from covid well enough he had to miss the entire year because of covid stuff he couldn't even make it to the world juniors but um, but yeah, hopefully he'll he'll be as good as he can be as he recovers. Um, Matthew Boldy is also someone we 
what we should look forward to. We covered him a lot um, these past couple of years as well. Uh, Kaylin Addison's another one too. Um, and I, I just found out that he scored a point um, in these playoffs. So, so that's something to look forward to as well. Um, and not to mention that Capo Kakonin um, is also, he had a pretty decent regular season as well. So they, their, their future is pretty bright for, um, in Minnesota. Um, so I, I, I think um, that that is something that should be um, acknowledged uh, before we get into like what they should do in the short term. Um, for RFAs, they have Kevin Fiala, uh, Joel Erickson, uh, Kirill Kaprizov, and Brandon Duhaney. Um, those are the RFAs. So those are, you know, especially Kaprizov and Fiala, those are guys that they sh- that should be expecting a raise. Um, and so I'll be curious how that goes because, um, especially for Kaprizov, because he's going to win the Calder um, and this is his last year on an entry-level contract. So um, I, I am curious to see how he does. Um, Erickson X should also be interesting too because he really had a breakout season this year. Um, so I wonder what they're going to do there. Same with Kevin Fiala, although he was better last year, but he still was pretty decent this year. I think he had like 40 points in 56 games, so that's that's pretty good. Um, and um, and they also have the first round pick of the Penguins as well this year so, uh, from that Jason Sucker trade. Um, oh, they also have their third round pick too. Um, I guess that maybe that's a different trade. Is that a different trade? Oh, that is a different trade. Um, they get from the Ryan Donato uh, that the from the Ryan Donato trade um, from the Sharks. I guess the uh, the Sharks traded their third round pick. That was the Penguins originally. Um, so, anyways, <laughs> um, so yeah, I think they're in. Uh, that that's going to be interesting just from an RFA standpoint. As for UFAs, you have Marcus Johansson, um, Nick Bonino, uh, Nick Bukestad, Kyle Rao, Joseph Cramrosa, Luke Johnson, Ian Cole, uh, Brad Hunt, uh, Dakota Mermis, and Louis Belpedo. Oh, and Andrew Hammond, the Hamburglar. So uh, those are, I guess those aren't too... Um, two recognizable players that they could afford to lose um, in the offseason. Although maybe they'll keep on Marcus Johansson and Nick Bonino and maybe Nick Bukestad if the price is right, but we'll see. Um, but, yeah, I think Minnesota, you know, did really well in their first year on the rebuild. Um, <laughs> they were a legitimate, like, force. And, you know, they, they almost went into the second round. So it almost feels like the rebuild's over. Um, where, um, which is an interesting uh, standpoint that um, I'm not sure if Bill Guerin expected them to be at at this point. Yeah, and and that's a guy that I think deserves a lot of the credit. Like we were talking about Minnesota last year, where that they, they were digging themselves into a pretty tough spot, and it would probably take a couple of years. I probably am willing to admit that if you put them in the central division with teams like Winnipeg and they face Colorado a fair bit, 
I'm willing to admit that their record isn't nearly as good as it is because this year was fantastic. Uh, like they were a solid number three seed in that division. But I definitely think they get at least 35 wins with this team, maybe 40 wins um, in a normal A2 game season with their usual division alignments. Uh, like Kirill Kaprizov proved that he's the real deal. He proved it from start to finish. And as good as Jason Robertson was, Kaprizov down the stretch was just an absolute beast, scoring timely goals and playing, honestly, his absolute best hockey during that time. And and that's what the cream of the crop always seemed to do. Kevin Fiala showed what he could do uh, in the late stages of 2019-2020. And uh, the next test for him is to keep building and pushing. I think he did a fair bit of that this year. I still think he can get to another level. So I'm eager to see what he can do. Um, like you said, Brett, the evolution of Greenway and Erickson Eck, um, that's that's something that I think Minnesota fans really need to see. And uh, for the youth movement that already doesn't have Marco Rossi, imagine you throw him into the mix. Adam Beckman, if he gets into the mix as well, Matthew Boldy, when he gets into the mix, that youth movement's looking pretty solid. When you throw those guys in with the likes of Erickson Eck, with the likes of Jordan Greenway and Kirill Kaprizov, uh, Carson Soucy on the back end is still improving. Galen Addison hasn't made an NHL impact yet. And that defense already has the likes of Jonas Brodeen, Jared Spurgeon, and even in his 30s, Ryan Suter is still eating up number one minutes, which is pretty good. The face-off depth, I think, is still a work in progress. I think it's something that once they dealt Eric Stahl to the Sabres, I think it became an immediate impact um, that a point that needed to be addressed there. Um, I don't think that changes this off season um, in terms of Ian Cole as a depth defenseman. If they get him on a cheaper deal with a bit of flexibility, I think he stays, but with um, at a $3.45 million cap hit, I don't think he's really worth that. Colorado basically gave uh, Minnesota Ian Cole just to, get rid of some cap space basically. And they took on like Greg Patteron and just stashed him in their lineup somewhere. So I, I, I don't know if, if Ian Cole is 3.5, $3.5 million good, but I, I definitely think he's a serviceable defenseman at the right price. Um, the two names that I'm eager to see what happens uh, in the coming months are Zach Parise and Matt Dumba who are heading in different directions. Matt Dumba looks similar to his old self. Last year, he was the subject of trade rumors, but this year, he looked like a very good, reliable offensive defenseman. And there were a couple of times in that series with Vegas where he was just straight up bringing it, like doing whatever he could to help the team win. And that's what you like to see. Um Zach Parise, meantime, didn't really start off too well for him in the playoffs. There were a couple of times in the regular season where he got healthy scratched. To start off the playoffs, I think the first three to four games he was scratched against Vegas. But then he comes back with a little bit of um, a little bit of vigor to his game, and he was able to produce for the Minnesota Wild. But I don't think he's done that enough to really prove that he still belongs on this team. So... 
I don't know if it's a buyout or if they just beg Seattle to take him. But I, I think Zach Parise's time with the Minnesota Wild is about to come to an end, whether he likes it or not. Just because um, in order for the Minnesota Wild to actually add some pieces and get better, um, I think they, they need to trade away one of those baggage contracts. And not to say that Zach Parise is a bad player, but he's on a bad contract. That contract's still weighing them down, and they need to get rid of it. I don't know about that. I feel like it's so like as you just mentioned, their con- his contract's so bad that I don't think it's going to like any team's going to want to take that on. Uh, they would have, you know, the Wild would probably have to like package in one of their prospects as well in order for oh, 100%. To so I'm not, I, I would be opposed to doing that if I was Bill Guerin. Um, but I, I think they're in good shape because, like, you know, they're still a young team and they can still manage without it. It's just um, I don't know if they necessarily need to trade Zach Parise. Um, maybe if, if you want to trade one of their bad contracts, maybe you trade Matt Zuccarello. Um Somewhere, because it's at least somewhat reasonable, and he had a pretty good season. But, um, but yeah, I, I don't know if you necessarily do that for Zach Parise. Um, or maybe you have, like, you know, maybe it depends on it. Maybe Zach Parise wants to go to Seattle, so you just uh, allow him to remove his no-movement clause or something like that. But um, yeah, yeah, it depends because I, 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 I think his heart's still in Minnesota, but yeah. I don't think he likes being scratched repeatedly. Yeah, that's and fair. that's gonna, that's probably going to grow weary on a player after a while. That's fair, but he's also I mean he he was pretty good uh, still, but yeah, I I guess that's a good point. We'll see. Um, that could happen, I guess. Um, maybe I, I he could say, go to though, Florida. Their goaltending, <laughs> their goaltending hasn't looked this good in years, though. Yeah, like. Talbot missed a fair bit of time this year, and during the time that he was out, Capo Kakinen really took charge sure. of that crease, which is awesome. I Not to disrespect what Devin Dubnik did there, but when it came to the playoffs, it always seemed like Minnie was on the losing end of a goaltending battle. Yeah. And for the first time in a long time, goaltending almost stole a series for Minnesota. Like, they, they brought Vegas to a game seven after being down three to one. And there were times against Vegas where they looked like the better team. So for, for a team that played in a weak division, they definitely showed a lot of fight against Vegas that they belonged as a solid number three team and almost put themselves in opportunity to be facing Colorado in round two. So there's definitely plenty to build off of. And I think in order for Minnesota to avoid taking a step back, their goaltending needs to be, as good as this year, if not maybe a bit better too. Yep, yep, that makes sense. Um, yeah, and, and yeah, that's that's totally true too. That like their goaltending was very very good, and a big reason why they were able to um, get it to Game Seven. But of course, um, it was the series we were all looking for. It was destined to happen. Um, so Colorado and Vegas play each other, um, and they're matched up this time around. Um, so, uh, from Colorado's standpoint, uh, they have uh, Nathan McKinnon. Uh, it's, it's crazy just looking at their stats here. 
Uh, McKinnon had nine points in four games. Six of those were goals. Um, he was like a wild killer. Uh, not, sorry, not a wild killer. A blues killer. Um, Gabriel Landeskog also had a good uh, series with eight points. Uh, Miko Rantanen had seven because he's on the same line. Uh, Ryan Graves had four points. Uh, Kel McCarr had three. Um, and then um, as for your other players, like Brandon Saad, Jonas Donskoy, Samuel Girard, all had um, three points. Oh, wait, uh, Girard had two points. Uh, Jost and Nutushkin and Devin Tays also had two points. Um, so so there's that. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's pretty much been the Nathan McKinnon show uh, with – uh, Gabriel Landeskog and Miko Rantanen as supporting characters, but sometimes that's all you need. Um, and then Philip Grubauer uh, was as impressive. Um, he had a 9.36 save percentage and a 1.75 GAA. Um, of course, who they're facing off against will be, is going to be a lot tougher than the St. Louis Blues, but still going to be pretty. Um, they're still going to be pretty good. Um, as for the Vegas Golden Knights. Um, Matthias Janmark actually has their most points, um, <laughs> believe it or not. He did have a hat-trick in Game 7. Believe it or not, I, I don't know if, like, I mean, I think you could guess this uh, just based off of um, what um, what happened last year, but uh, there's only been, th- like, the last th- three guys who had a hat-trick in a Game 7 was Matthias Janmark, Joel Kivaranta last year, and then Wayne Gretzky. Um, <laughs> so there's like a big time span between between those those hat tricks and game sevens, which is just crazy. I also like that because people forget Yanmark was on Dallas last year. Right. Yeah, that's a good point too. I did, I forgot about that. So that yeah, that is a good point. Uh, but yeah, he was he was really good. Uh, six points in seven games. Uh, Mark Stone. Had five points in seven games. Alex Tuck had five points. Uh, so did Chandler Stevenson. Um, and then for four points, we have here Nick Holden, Nicholas Roy, um, William and William Carlson. Three points was Alex Petrangelo, Riley Smith. Um, and then you have uh, for two points, you have uh, Zach Whitecloud, Keegan Colsar, and Shea Theodore. I feel like Shea Theodore has to get better. Uh, same with Jonathan Marchessault. As well, he only had one goal in these seven games. Um, and also, it was kind of a good goal in that game seven was Nicholas Haig. Um, he had one goal in five games, uh, so he didn't play a little bit. But And then I guess they don't have Max Petretti, which was going to hurt them. Uh, he only played in one game um, in this series. Um, as for my prediction, I did allude to this last week. Um, but I, I mean, I know that the, uh, Colorado St. Louis, um, isn't as good as Minnesota was, but Colorado dominated. Um, and I think, um, I, I, I just, I think Colorado is just on a mission right now. And I, I, I think it's going to go seven games, but I wouldn't be surprised if it goes six. Um, and I also think uh, from the Vegas side of things, and I've mentioned this before, but their center depth isn't great. Um, they don't uh, like Chandler. Not to take anything away from Chandler Stevenson um, or uh, or even Matthias Janmark, but 
um, or William Carlson, but um, it's just I, f- I feel like that's going to be their downfall, um, and I think this is going to be the series that does it. Uh, and they're going to try to get a, a center next uh, next you know in the in the summer, but um, but yeah, I, I, I'm going to say that Colorado in seven um, for those two reasons. Mm, interesting. Um, yeah, this, this is going to be fun and I hope it goes seven just because I feel we, we all deserve good hockey as in, as fans were entitled to top tier matchups and this classifies as that, like these two were battling for the division till the very end, Colorado beat the Kings final day of the regular season and that secured the division. They were dead even at 82 points. And I think it was because of head to head or something like that. Colorado won the tiebreaker and they got first, but Without that win, Vegas finishes in first, and they have home ice instead of Colorado. So these two were neck and neck throughout the year, and every single time they play each other in the regular season, it was a lot of fun to watch. Um, so I I expect a very good uh, playoff series. This is, of course, a playoff series with no history because this is the first time they're squaring off against each other. In terms of all-time regular season meetings, there are 16 of those. The Avs won nine of them. Uh, over the past four years, uh, both teams in this year's season series won four games. Vegas had the edge in goals, 18 to 17 in terms of shots on goal per game. Colorado had a slight edge, 30.3 to 28.3. So only a two shot difference. Not bad. Uh, so Vegas was hanging around. Um, this could be very problematic for Colorado here. Vegas's penalty kill in eight games against Colorado this year. Not too many teams can contain Colorado's power play, but Vegas, for the time uh, that it was tested, they were able to pass an alarming amount of tests against the Avs, which either tells me they're due to get burned massively if they keep it up, or they have Colorado's number and that trend's going to continue. So we'll see which is the case uh, for round two. Uh, Probably the Achilles heel for the Golden Knights is 3-1 series leads. They've had one three straight years, and they've been forced into Game 7 each time. Of course, we remember the Joe Pavelski game, uh, the Kevin LeBanc uh, four-point third period game uh, in 2019. Um, Arguably, Vegas probably could have, should have won that game, but they didn't. They lost in overtime. Their series ended in Round 1. Uh, they almost got Demcoed by Vancouver after going up 3-1 to the Canucks in round two. They were able to survive that barely and win 3-0 in game seven. And then they almost got goalied by Minnesota on various occasions, were forced into a game seven this time, but uh, they were able to prevail with their offensive depth. Um, now, there were a lot of, there are a lot of things that uh, motivate these teams and, I think leadership is the big thing. Vegas obviously has Mark Stone and the abs have Gabriel Landeskog. And prior to the Avalanche Blues series, um, Ryan O'Reilly said that he feels very confident about the Blues and he felt they will beat the abs. Obviously, the exact opposite happened and they got uh, swept. And Landis Cog was quick to say that at the start of the series, before the start of game one, when Ryan O'Reilly said those words, it motivated the Avs from start to finish. And that the, the Avs are a team that's easily motivated. 
So probably best not to get under their skin. I feel like they're a team that if you piss them off, they just play better. (laughs) So um, I I don't know if if any tactics uh, by Vegas' bottom six guys are really going to work. Speaking of bottom six guys, uh, Ryan Reeves is in COVID protocol, which if that continues to be a trend, that's tough on Vegas because – I feel like Ryan Reeves is the type of guy that can get Nico Rantanen off his game, that can get Landis Cog off his game, that can really get McKinnon rattled. And we've seen a rattled Nathan McKinnon at various points throughout last year's playoffs for basically every game against the Arizona Coyotes this year. And the Coyotes didn't even make the playoffs, but they seem to piss off Nathan McKinnon somehow. Um, there's, a, there's a lot to say about how good these two teams are. Um, I think the X factor could be for Vegas. If Flurry gets hurt or he struggles, they have Robin Leonard to go to. If something happens with Grubauer, I don't know if the Avs are as lucky. They have Devin Dubnik and Jonas Johansson. I don't know if either can match up against Vegas um, as good as Grubauer can. So I think it's advantage Vegas if uh, Grubauer is struggling or is injured. Um, and in terms of matchups, I like to see normally you would think McKinnon and Stone would be a big one. I think Kale McCarr versus Shea Theodore is the bigger one. You have two young Canadian defensemen going toe to toe. It should be a great matchup there. But I think ultimately the depth of the Avs offense is going to prevail with or without Nazem Kadri. They get it done in seven games. Okay, so we have the same prediction there too. Uh, fun. Yeah. Okay. So I also forgot to mention that Mark Andre Fleury, um, as good as Cam Talbot was, uh, Mark Andre Fleury was even better. He had a mm-hmm. nine thirty one save percentage and a one point seven one GAA. Um, it's it's phenomenal. He's probably getting the Masterton, but it is it is kind of crazy because last year we were thinking like, oh, Robin Leonard, he's going to be the starter, but uh, Mark Andre Fleury is uh, is playing his best hockey right now. Um, and uh, so that shouldn't go understated um, as well. So now uh, we go to the North Division, and we'll probably talk about the most heated obituary um, this week. We saved the best for last. Uh, the Edmonton Oilers, of course, I'm talking about. Uh, they get swept uh, by the Winnipeg Jets, um, and it wasn't like, I mean, there were a couple of games where you felt like the Edmonton Oilers were in it, but... Um, it was pr- it was a pretty close sweep even still, but I don't know. Yeah, guess, like yeah. like games two, three, and four were all one goal. They all went to overtime, yep. and the lo- and the Oilers lost every single one. Yep. If they win every single one, it's a three to one series lead going back to Edmonton. Yep, um, and it's just uh, it's crazy. I think the other thing is is that I'm not sure why we didn't pay attention to this when it happened, but uh, during the trade deadline, right after uh, Ken Holland was. Uh, asked why he didn't make too many trade deadline stuff. And he was saying, it's like, not every year you expect to be a contender or not. You, you can't uh, choose to compete every year. And yes, I, I see where he's, he's talking about. Um, I get it. I, you know, it's, it's not like you want to trade your first round picks every year and you don't want to like trade your prospects. You don't know, like, obviously you don't know, what these prospects are going to turn into, but, um, like, I, I get it. Sometimes you don't have to. However, you have Connor McDavid, who's, who had the best season of, in the post-lockout era. Like, 
exactly that. You also have Leon Treisaitl, who was the uh, he didn't have as good of a year this year as he did last year, but he was still pretty good. Uh, you have him, um, and he won the Hart Trophy last year. Uh, you also have him. You also have Ryan Nugent Hopkins, who is pretty good, although he's going to be a UFA. You don't have him. Uh, you had like Mike Smith playing one of his best seasons um, in his career. Yes, you don't have Oscar Clefbaum, but uh, Darnell Nurse kind of like made up for it this year. Tyson Berry was pretty good, but you're not you're probably not going to sign him this year. It's like if you're not going for it now, like when are you going to go for it? <laughs> you were in like the worst division too, um, where like the only real competition was the. Um, was the Toronto Maple Leafs, and I guess they should have, you know, taken the Winnipeg Jets more seriously, but, like, on paper, the Edmonton Oilers are the best team in the league. Um, so, like, why didn't they try to get Kyle Palmieri or Taylor Hall or Jeff Carter or Anthony Mantha, like all the East Division teams did? They should have been, they should have been forthright and, and try to go for it, um, even trying to get, like, Patrick Line from Winnipeg or trying to get Pierre-Luc Dubois um, early on in the season. Like, they could have just made some moves to do that. Or um, it's just that part makes no sense to me. It's like, because, like, I was assuming, like, Edmonton was good. I know they didn't have Oscar Kleffbaum, but Mike Smith was, like, you know, you're not going to have another Mike Smith-like season. Um, and you don't really have like a goaltender um, in the system. Not to knock Konowalov, but he's a few years away still. Um, and the Oilers are not going to like, you know, like and McDavid and Drysital. They're you know they're still going to be pretty good for the next decade, but they're not going to be this good. They're they're in their prime right now. And that's the frustrating part if I was the Edmonton Oilers fan or anything. It's just like, why didn't they try to try to do something? Like, when your GM says, like, oh, yeah, we're not going for it. We're, we're just considering this year of wash. Anyways, when you have the best player in the league and arguably the second best player in the league on your team, that makes no sense to me. They should have been going for it. Um, and... It, 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 yeah, it makes no sense to me. I'm, I'm at a loss. I think every hockey fan is. Right? Yeah. I mean, Winnipeg's a good team. And maybe they beat the Oilers in seven. Best case scenario, six games. But a four-game sweep. And you nullify McDavid and Dreisaitl. Like, like, like give, me, give me photographic... Give me video evidence of someone who's saying they called Winnipeg sweeping Edmonton. Hmm. Nobody, I guarantee you, nobody said that. Not even me. And I, I, I felt that Edmonton, you know, they would probably win this in six or seven games because I felt, you know, Winnipeg was going to be better. But Connor McDavid and Leon Drysdale, the way they had Winnipeg's number, like it's a crime. Like, Edmonton's going to win. But I think that... I think, if anything, this series showed us Edmonton's true flaws. Like, Josh Archibald's costly penalty in Game 3. 
That triggered the multi-goal Winnipeg comeback. Oilers are on track to win that game, get back in the series. It's 2-1. to one. Anything can happen at that point. Edmonton's back in business. McDavid and Drysdale, I think, had three points that game, too. That game goes into overtime, and Winnipeg finds a way to win that game. It's a 3 nothing series lead. At that point, it looks all but lost. Even though the fourth game went triple OT and the Oilers still had a chance, I think... I don't see them winning four straight with Hellebuck playing that well and Winnipeg having so much belief in that locker room. It just wasn't going to go the Oilers way after that game three collapse. And you need better play from your depth guys. And I know I, 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 this is another funny part. Pierre McGuire saying Connor McDavid can become a better two way player. Yeah, that's ridiculous. I'll say part of that is true, but he needs a better team around him. Yeah. Like, if it's so simple to contain the Oilers just by shutting down McDavid and Drysdale, and they'll admit not every team can do that. The Sens certainly proved that. The Jets proved it in the regular season. It's not always easy to do. But if you find a way to shut down McDavid and shut down Drysdale, it doesn't matter diddly squat what the other team does. That's basically their offense. Yep. Like the final eight games of the regular season, you saw how good McDavid and Drysdale were and what little the rest of the offense did. Yep. So why would you be surprised that if you nullify McDavid and Drysdale in the playoffs of the Oilers to get swept in the first round? Of course they would, because they have nothing. There's James Neal, which is basically a deadweight contract at this point. <laughs> uh, Tyler Ennis. I mean, for one million, yeah, good depth forward, but they need more than what he brought. Yep. Alex Chase on two point one five million, they need more than what he brought to the table. Ryan Nugent Hopkins at six million, I get that he's your best secondary scorer, but I, I still think he could have brought more to the table there. The good news is the Edmonton Oilers have some decisions to make, and I mentioned. Nugent Hopkins, I mentioned Chase on, I mentioned Ennis, because those guys are unrestricted free agents as of a couple months from now. It's the same with Adam Larson, whose cap hit is $4.166 million. Uh, it's the same with Tyson Berry at $3.75 million. It's the same with Kulikov at $1.5 million, who, oh, yeah, didn't play game four. Yep. Yeah, you get him at the trade deadline. You don't even play him in a do-or-die game. Shows how much you, you think about his value to the team, I guess. And you freaking play Darnell Nurse for like 75% of one OT period and 60 plus minutes. This is, by the way, second half of a back-to-back. And you look at Sleater Cuckoo's ice time, you look at Ethan Bear's ice time, it's not even 20 minutes the entire game. Like, th- that's another thing. Like, it's not just with McDavid and Dreisaitl. They're overusing Darnell Nurse just it's just so blatantly obvious they're they're overusing him in game four so it's not just the forwards they need to address it's their depth on the blue line too and i i think mike smith at 40 years of age i i don't know if he can replicate these kind of numbers and and that's why i i think it would be a mistake to bring him back but he showed more than what miko koskinen has done over the past year and a bit like Miko 
Koskinen, the Oilers, until Mike Smith got back, were hovering around 500. Then Mike Smith comes around and things start to get better. Things start to happen for them. So at the very least, if you're going to keep Mike Smith, it'll be a cheaper price than Miko Koskinen. And by the way, Ken Holton, uh, by the way, Ken Holland hinted at a potential buyout. It's either going to be used on James Neal or Miko Koskinen, one of the two. Hmm. And I think the Oilers would be wise to get, if not a 1A, 1B kind of goaltender, someone like Anderson or Grubauer. Because the tandem of Smith, Koskinen, or Koskinen, whoever it is, um, they they can't go back to the same goaltending tandem. They they need a better solution than that next year. Um, uh, Yeah. I, <laughs> You're also at a loss. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, you look at Tampa Bay and how long it took for them to finally win the Stanley Cup, even when they were contenders, legit contenders, for years and years and years. It took them multiple years yeah. to win the Stanley Cup. It was the same with Detroit uh, in the mid-1990s dynasty that they had. It took them years to get to the finals. It took them years to find a way to beat Colorado. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you, this team only has a playoff series win with McDavid and Dreisaitl. Like, they, they're struggling to get out of the first round. Yep. And they're such a one-dimensional offense. Ken Holland says sometimes it's not the right time to make moves at the deadline. You need to save those moves for the offseason, my friend. Get a goalie. Get a depth guy like Blake Coleman to help out the bottom six, to add a little bit of grit, but also some shots on goal, some goals, period. Just make it easier for McDavid and Dreisaitl because the longer they expect McDavid and Dreisaitl to carry this team, the more prime years of McDavid and Dreisaitl, they're going to be just wasting away. And the, the Oilers fan base deserves much better than that. Like at least, they can make the playoffs on like the favors, but at least win a point. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I kind of made the same kind of point too. Uh, Pierre Maguire said that uh, you kind of alluded to it, but uh, Pierre Maguire said that he thinks that uh, they should make uh, Connor McDavid more of like a Steve Yeiserman type and start to play more two way. Um, and maybe that will be their hint of, their success however uh Yadiser, well first off Yadiserman won his first cup when he was like 28 years old uh secondly um and obviously Yadiserman isn't as skilled as Connor McDavid is he's uh, like as good as Gretzky was um secondly uh Yadiserman had Nick Lidstrom he had uh Sergei Fedorov he had uh mm-hmm. you know I could run down this list I'm blanking at it at the moment, but Igor Chris Larianoff, who was a good yeah, Igor Larianoff, Brendan Shanahan, uh, Brett Hull. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, I, I mentioned Nick Lindstrom. Anyways, the point is, is that he had like a bunch of Hall of Famers <laughs> with him in Detroit uh, when they were really later. Good. Chris Chelios, yeah, as Chris well. Chelios. I, I thought I mentioned Chris Chelios, but yes, you're right. Ch- Chelios. Okay, maybe as well. you did, but yeah, worth um, mentioning again because it was that. Cool. Yeah, it's worth it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, they also, the Red Wings also got like 
a seventh round pick in Pavel Datsuk. Um, I know it was a little <laughs> bit later than uh, when Yajimir was there. Henrik Zetterberg was a fifth round pick. Yeah, so it's like, um, you know, like <laughs> Detroit was really lucky. I know that Ken Holland was the GM back then, but there was a few times when he was really, really lucky, um, which also makes his like his statements even more confusing because like Detroit back in towards the later days when they had that playoff streak going, like he would make these trades like every year to make the playoffs, like no, no matter how much it hurt their future. Um, and it, of course that was kind of their downfall at the end of there. But like, do you think like Ken Holland or Detroit's going to regret that? Like, no way. Like, yes, they suck right now, but you know, at least they got a couple cups and it was the best franchise um, we've seen in the modern era since like ever, you know, in the, in the last 20 years. So it's tougher to yeah. tell in the mid nineties because that was in the rich get richer days where you had yeah. no salary cap and everyone fair. wanted to go to Detroit and, and win a championship. That, that, that's fair. But like at the same time, like Ken Holland was making moves every single year to make sure that Detroit made the playoffs. Um, I'm talking specifically towards the later time when like a bunch of those guys had retired or weren't as good as they used to be. So, um, so I'm talking about more about that time period, but like, you know, he should have, you know, like if anyone, if any GM understands like people's windows and when to make good trades, it's Ken Holland. Um, so, so that part makes no sense to me. But anyways, um, I do also want to give credit to the Winnipeg Jets. It seems like they figured out somehow, like, to how to stop Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. Like, they played pretty good defense. Um, Connor Helbick was, like, stood on his head, of course, and he's probably the best goaltender in the league. But um, I also want to uh, talk about how, like, Winnipeg Jets defense was pretty, pretty good. Um, of course, maybe they're going to falter. Uh, next round, but they found out a way to figure out Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, which uh, the re- the other five teams didn't figure out. So uh, credit to them for for finally figuring out how to stop them. Um, that, that's something that um, I'll be interested to see how they do against like whoever it is in the next round. Um, I also want- I, I also I I also uh, before you get to your final point there, yeah. Brett. Um, whether it's down the line in the playoffs or in a separate episode, I, I want to dedicate a fair amount of time to the amount of beast mode, god tier plays that Darnell Nurse made in game four, or even just his entire ice time catalog. Like, yeah. I believe someone tweeted out his ice time catalog, and it. it the ice time catalog was so big it couldn't even fit on the screen. Yeah, <laughs> that that's how many that's how many yeah. shifts he logged, how much time he played throughout the course of the game. So in a f- in a future uh, episode, I'll definitely delve more that's deeper so into fair. that. But j- just Darnell Nurse's play, forget the series in Game Four alone yeah, was, was spectacular really too. All right, I feel like we should get into the next Game Seven. This is a pretty long episode, so um, mm-hmm. but I do want to note that on that note of Darnell Nurse playing a lot of minutes. That should probably decrease next year when Oscar Clefbaum comes back. So, um, <laughs> and and Philip Roberg and Evan Bouchard should probably make an, another step 
next year. So I, I do have some uh, feelings for that. Uh, you mentioned some of the UFAs. I do want to mention that um, there was a no. Oh, uh, Kyler Yamamoto is an RFA this uh, year. Um, and that's probably the only notable RFA that they have to uh, figure out. Um, and also, good job on Jesse Pugliarvi. I thought he was finished, but it looks like he, he could be a pretty decent player, um, but more as a depth guy um, than mm-hmm. like your third overall pick like he was in 2016. Yeah. Um, but the, at the very least... Like Sorry, it showed that it showed like that he had a future, which is yeah. awesome. And there's also Kahunu's and yeah. RFA too. Yeah. And and I think uh, you you mentioned the uh, Broberg and Bouchard. The way the Oilers handled their developments, um, I think, could also impact whether or not they keep Tyson Berry. Yeah. I think if they keep Tyson Berry around, it means that Broberg and Bouchard are still gonna be playing in the minors for at least next year. Still, yeah. that's a good point. All right, lastly, um, the Toronto Maple Leafs might actually pull an Edmonton Oilers um, where uh, they, they won. It was, it was interesting, too, because they won their first, uh, I think it was their first three games. Um, nope. Oh, uh, did they lose game three? Um, they, they lost They lost game one because oh, yeah, right, that right, was the game right. where Tavares got hurt, and yeah. then they won three straight to take yeah, a 3-1 yeah. lead. Yeah, good, good call. I forgot about that. Um, so... <laughs> So, yeah, I was just thinking, like, okay, so it looks like Toronto's going to win this, and then we'll all, like, the North Division's going to get caught up with everything. Um, but no, that's not that's not what happens. It's like, it's almost like I forgot that this is the Toronto Maple Leafs we're talking about. Uh, because. Uh, I think Maple Leafs fans have also yeah. forgotten. Somehow it's like, okay, they lose game five, that's okay. They'll, they'll, they'll win it in game six. But nope, this is the Toronto Maple Leafs again. Like they, they don't, they just didn't show up. And, um, and it, what's weird is like, I think we've talked about this before is that like, you know, we thought that maybe the issue was Frederick Anderson. Um, and that doesn't seem to be the case either. Like Jack Campbell has been playing really, really well. He has a 937 save percentage and a GAA of 1.77. Um, and so he's only allowed like 11 game goals in these six games. I guess that's kind of a lot, but um, so like that save percentage is pretty good. And then all of a sudden, like you're dealing with Carey Price, who like he's standing on his head and he's um, he's scary and he's getting going. Uh, he has a 926 save percentage and a 2.44 GAA. So you have Jack Campbell, who's outplaying Carey Price, even though Carey Price was like dominant in that overtime of game six and it's like now all of a sudden like toronto is on their heels and it's like are we seeing like 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 i don't like we thought the edmonton oilers obituary is going to be pretty bad like toronto obituary which could happen like like i don't even know where you go from here if toronto all i know brett's probably prepared is right now yeah i i have well, yeah, I guess, like, now that I'm thinking about it, like, but, like, even so, like, I don't even know what you do at this point if you're Toronto, because, like, I guess you trade William Nylander, but that doesn't feel like the right move either, because he has been your best player in this series, so, yeah, he, so that makes no sense. Yeah, very good, like, yeah. he scored in the first four games, yeah. each of them. So that makes no sense. I guess, like, like, maybe you make a trade to get more defensemen somehow, 
Uh, Jack Campbell seems like he's still pretty good, so that wasn't the issue. It's just like, like um, maybe you get a new coach. Um, like I don't know what you do, but like good for Montreal. It's it's weird watching this series because these are like my two least favorite teams, <laughs> but um, but like yeah, I have to credit Montreal here. They, you know, they were you know we all thought that they were down. Um, even like, you know, and then they just win game five and they win game six. So, uh, good for them. Um, and then, um, and you know, even in that game, like they were up, uh, two nothing in the third period, then Toronto scores quickly, uh, to go to overtime. And I was thinking like, okay, so this is, you know, Toronto is going to score in overtime and, you know, Montreal just continues to do it. Um, so yeah, they, they've been really good and they've gotten, like their goals from guys like Tyler Toffoli, Joel Armia, uh, Kot Kanemi gets that overtime goal. Nick Suzuki gets the overtime goal in game five. So Cole Caulfield's been playing um, as well. He's, he's had one assist in four games, but like, um, yeah, so, so good for them for like, you know, perseverance and stuff, but I, <laughs> it's, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I really feel bad for Toronto. Like, <laughs> like I, I don't know what what they're gonna do. It's just, I, it, it's 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 crazy to me. I I feel like this would be even more shocking than Edmonton getting swept. I'm glad the Maple Leafs are getting the perspective of what it was like to be the Sens whenever they faced the Leafs in the 2000s, yeah. and we always lost. Like, yeah. like. Just the type of series where it's like, what do we got to do to beat these guys? Yep. Like, how is this possible? Mm-hmm. Like, we're out shooting them, we're out playing them, and we're losing still. Like, why? Why is this happening? And the the, the kicker is, like, <laughs> get, get this. So, first period, 15 to 9, Montreal leading on the shot clock, even at 6 in period 2. The Canadians get outshot 15 to 8 in the third period. They get a 2-0 lead, as you mentioned, then Toronto quickly ties it up, right, for overtime. And this is the second game in a row where the Canadians blow multi-goal leads and are forced into overtime, and yet for the second straight game, they find a way to win after getting outshot, get this, 13-2 in the overtime. Yeah. And yet they score once on two shots and force a game seven like it's nothing. And I... I I get that a lot of guys and gals are going to point to the Toronto Maple Leafs and say, it's because they're cursed. They can't win game sevens and yeah, their game seven track record isn't great. Everyone remembers the OT loss in 2013. There's the 2018 loss in Boston. There's the 2019 loss in Boston. There was the game five loss, which kind of felt like a game seven loss to Columbus at home which they got shut out. Right. And now they're about to go home against the Montreal Canadiens, which, by the way, out of the 15 series these two teams have played, this is only the second all-time Game 7. The first one was 1964. Mm. Good news for Toronto fans, your team won that game. So at least you have that. Don't have any current Game 7 wins. Meanwhile, the Sens, who have struggled for many, many years now, They've won, like, seven playoff series, been to the conference finals twice, and they've even been to the finals once. So I totally get why Leafs fans are just bewildered that they can't win a series. Yep. 
the reason why I picked Toronto in seven games is the fact that Montreal is an underdog that you can't give any sort of life to. And this is why. Last year, 2020 play-in, lowest-seeded playoff team, they faced Pittsburgh, as we mentioned in the Pittsburgh obituary, didn't need the five games to beat Pittsburgh. They took three of four and sent Pittsburgh packing. But in 2010, during their run, this is a real case in point, and Yaroslav Halak was a goalie, not Carey Price. Carey Price was on the bench for most of this. Right. Round one, Washington Capitals. Alex Ovechkin, height of his career, Nick Backstrom, height of his young career, 300-plus goals for Washington, this juggernaut offense. Nothing's going to stop them. They're up 3-1 against Montreal. And then Montreal wins game five to stay alive. Then they win game six to stay alive. Then they go to Washington's barn and beat them. They're done. Washington's blown a 3-1 lead. The Habs don't care about the situation. They find a way to win. And then the next round, force Pittsburgh into a game seven. That Penguins team just won the cup the year before. The year before that, they made the finals. Game seven in Pittsburgh, who cares? Habs win again. They are a playoff giant killer, and I had a feeling that they would push Toronto to the absolute breaking point. Hmm. And I say that because remember the 2011 Bruins that won the Stanley Cup? They were forced into OT of a game seven by Montreal. They were one goal away from being a first-round exit, and they won that game, and they were able to win the Stanley Cup because of that series, I think, because of how close they were to losing it all. And I think that really gave Boston the wake-up jolt that they needed to really go all the way this year. So my thoughts on this series are it could end in total heartache like it always seems to go for Toronto. If the Leafs find a way to win this, any team that gets in their way should be very afraid because there's something about this Toronto team, even going into this Game 7, Forget the Game 5 loss. Forget the Game 6 loss. This Leafs team feels much different to me compared to previous years. And I hope I'm proven right because even as a Sens fan, I I, I kind of want the Leafs to win yep. because it's this losing has gone on for too long. And at some point, they're going to find a way to get the result they're looking for. Even if it's against Montreal, they're – they're going to find a way, but they they absolutely need to take Montreal out of the game early. Three goal lead in the first period, get them on their heels, don't let them back in. If Montreal hangs around, it could end very, very badly for the Leafs. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's a good point. I, I still have some faith that Toronto is going to pull it off, but I don't know anymore. <laughs> it feels like I don't know. It, it's, it was strange because, like, you know, I was spending all week saying, like, I guess we can't have nice things because I was looking forward to the McDavid-Matthews matchup and, you know, the Oilers get swept there. And it, it looks like we might not even get Matthews into the next round. So uh, so we, we can't have nice things twice times over. Um, I'm, I'm glad yeah. you mentioned the Matthews stuff because it's been documented on Twitter. Yeah. Matthews and Marner, regardless of how good it seems they've played – 
statistically speaking, they've been snake bitten this series. Sure, they they were snake bitten last year against Columbus. They really need to bring it for game seven. Yep. Like they need to really take over the game and carry the Leafs offense because I'll give credit to the Leafs. One of the reasons why I like them is because guys like Alex Kerfoot have like five points or yep. something. Guys like Nylander are chipping in. Guys like Jason Spezza and Jake Muzzin are contributing, which even is Joe great. Even Joe Thornton, too. Yeah, even Joe Thornton. They need Matthews and Marner at that level. Yep, that, that's a good point, too. I mean, I didn't even mention that, but yes, you're right. Like, it is interesting that, like, all their deaf guys, even when they don't have John Tavares, um, yeah. they, they've been uh, they've been making moves. Uh, so that's, that's definitely been helpful. Um, okay, so lastly, before we go... Um, well, first off, so you think the Leafs are going to win Game 7, right? Yeah, and I'll take it one step further. I think Elchenyak ends Montreal's season. Interesting, okay. Yeah, I think the Leafs are going to win. I, I'm not going to go that bold on who's going to get the game winner. But, um, but yeah, I do I do think that the Maple Leafs are doing there. I hope so. Like, I saw Steve Dingle's uh, video <laughs> today. It looks like he's going to have, like, he's going to quit hockey if, if the Leafs Yeah, they're win. one game away from bending the knee completely. Basically, and, yeah, I, I, I legitimately feel bad for, for the Leafs. And <laughs> it's like, you know, it, it's weird. Like, it, it takes a lot for a Bruins fan and a Sens fan. But um, I, I, I genuinely, like, I don't know where, where you go from here. Because, like, you know, like it's just the league is better when the Leafs are good. And I feel like they're going to take a step back if, if they lose this uh, game, like a lot is at stake uh, for them. Mm-hmm. Um, not too much is at stake for the Haps because they're not really supposed to be good. <laughs> uh, so that's the interesting part. Um, so uh, since we'll probably won't be able to do a preview of the jets and whoever they play, uh, we do want to say uh, how how do they match up for the Leafs versus how do they match up for the Habs. Um, either way, I am curious if this defense that the Jets were able to pull off uh, in Edmonton uh, will continue for the Leafs or for the Habs. Um, I will obviously. I think that Leafs have a better offense, but um, I think you know Connor Hellebuck has been really really good and been on fire. It should be interesting to see, um, considering like they haven't played since like last week, um, so so they they there may be some rust involved yeah. with Connor Hellebuck, but um, I am curious to see how he gets going. I I feel like the Jets will be able to beat the Habs if they match up. Still, um, I know I don't th- I know Carey Price has been standing on his head for this series, but. I don't expect it to sustain um, if they go even further. Um, so I will say that I think the Jets will beat the Habs. And, you know, the Jets forwards have a lot of good forwards in their own right. Um, the Leafs and Jets is kind of an interesting dilemma here because, the Jet, you know, the Leafs would have just finished their Game 7 um, and they're, you know, they're more emotionally involved in it than at that point, but... The Jets are waiting for the Leafs right now. Um, or, I mean, I guess they're waiting for the Habs, too. But, um, yeah, it's, it's – I don't know. I feel like the Leafs will probably beat the Jets if, if they make it that far. But um, you don't know. It's, it's, it's tough to know. Like, I feel like the Leafs are so 
crazy right now that I, I can't even predict what's going to happen. It should be fun. If it's Jets-Habs, I can see that turning into an OT marathon if um, the goaltending between Price and Hellbuck yeah. is neck and neck. At that point, I think rest has the edge for Winnipeg. Um, so I think it'll be Jets and six if they play the Habs. If they play the Leafs, I think the Leafs are a team of destiny and they'll at least make the final four. Um, but the Jets will give them everything they can handle and it'll go seven games. So um, if it's Habs, Jets and six. If it's Leafs, um, I think Leafs over Jets and seven. Yeah, I like that prediction. I think I'm going to take that as my own as well. <laughs> okay. I'll say that. Um, cool. All right. Sounds good, and it should be fun. Uh, that's that's might be one of our longest episodes. We'll see. Yeah, not the ver- not the longest, but it's up there. It's Over up there, yeah, for sure. Uh, two hours thirty minutes. Um, oh, in fact, okay. um, in, in fact, I think the Carolina um, Tampa game has. Are, yeah, it just finished, and it started when we started recording. So, Tampa. <laughs> what won was the score? Two one Tampa. Ooh, um, okay. So. Um, yeah, that's about it for us. Uh, thanks. I appreciate if you stood this long or listened for this point. Um, I appreciate it. Of course. Um, you can follow us at Lace Em Up, um, on our Lace Up podcast at, on Twitter, Lace Em Up on Facebook, if you haven't already. Um, our SoundCloud and our Spotify and our iTunes are all Lace Em Up as well. Um, that's about it. I'm Brett Duboff. I'm Steve Ellsworth. We'll talk again in episode 272 of the Lace Em Up podcast.